talking to was folks like you on the quarter of the three finals. Yep. Like that's it. He he just made those games in his den entirely on his own with no resources, support, or you know, comms with anyone in the games industry. Yeah. It's and in a program, Macromedia Director, Director that was yeah. designed to make DVD menus. It's <laughs> insane. The man is a genius. everybody, this is Soren Johnson and you're listening to Designer Notes, a podcast about why we make games. Today, we are talking to veteran game developer Trent Custers, co-founder of League of Geeks, best known for the strategy game Armello. This episode was recorded on September 8th, 2023 and was engineered by Michael Hermes. Let's, let's wrap up the business part of yeah, this, this uh, it, discussion yeah. <laughs> and let's talk. So, yeah, let's talk about Armello as as a game mm-hmm. um, because it's it's um, there's a part of me that wishes I could just make games like Armello mm-hmm. all the time uh, <laughs> because I really love the idea of the, the of a board game that's never meant to be actually a board game. Yes. Yeah. But is built you know, using, you know, built digital first, takes mm-hmm. advantage of that mm-hmm. medium. But there's this really funny line mm-hmm. about what makes a digital board game different from just a video game? Yes. Right? Because it is just a video game. Yeah, yeah, of course. Right? Yeah. But it means that you have to, like, to some extent, cut yourself off from yeah. certain design options. Yeah. Right? Um, anyway, I'm sort of maybe talking no, to your part, yeah, yeah. but, like, the, like, what, like, the thing I would assume is you have to kind of decide all of your rules can be transparent. Yeah. Right? You know, you can't have things that are kind of, like, hidden or mm-hmm. unknown, or yeah. although I'm sure... Like thinking back of how Armella works, I'm not necessarily sure like when spirit stones pop up, yeah. right, from the things, right? Yeah. Like that's hidden, but that seems okay for some reason where yeah. other things don't. So, so we did. There, it's such an interesting, like, a, it's such an interesting question or thing to interrogate because this was all of our development. Like mm-hmm. this question of like, what is the line between video games and digital and like a board game and how, because also when we started, there were no digital first board games. Right. Like Hearthstone was announced while we were developing. Um, and I think was released soon, like soon after it was announced. Yep. Um, and so obviously when Blizzard come to the table, you're <laughs> like, okay, maybe we won't be best in class, but let's be best in class. Um, <laughs> but we were kind of, you know, like, um, tack- little did we know other people were doing it at the same time, but we were tackling this question of that digital versus physical convention and where do you land on these decisions from the start. And so one of the big ones that we knew was like we actually tried getting rid of dice and like mm. having this immediate sort of combat encounter where, the it you know, there are dice maybe but they don't roll or have – but it just didn't feel right. Like mm-hmm. having the physics-based dice roll and like actually tumble around the table was just – such a huge part of the game and the feel of it being a board game that that was in there from very early on we knew that um we got that physics going there are things like the cards like the convention of like actually having cards which are now obviously all throughout games like yep. it's everywhere you know but they they weren't back when we were doing this i think maybe there was a digital version of magic or something as a port and there was a card hunter like um yep. had done card hunter um and so there's some interesting stuff out there, but that was something that we wanted to get in there. Um, but there was actually, it's funny that you talk about obfuscation and mechanics because there were some that we actually obfuscated more and there were some that we obfuscated less or telegraphed more as we went through development. So there's spirit stones that pop up every, you know, every night a spirit stone pops up or every three nights or something around the board. Can't remember exactly now, but 
we actually added in post-launch telegraphing the night before. So the night before it would pop up in that spot, we would have like a blue glow and some, oh, like, I think some like okay. fireflies or lights crackling. God, you're really going to test my Armello memory in this <laughs> podcast episode. I'm now realizing. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But uh, um, so there was some stuff that we and did you, you did that because... Players expect players, it. Yeah. Players expect it. So there is a certain amount of when you sit down, you know, the magic circle, right? right. Where I'm going to sit down at this table and I'm going to roll these dice and I'm and the dice are going to be completely random and I'm going to alum, um, operate in all these elements that are random or whatever. And so you play a game like board game, like Talisman. Absolutely. I think it's fundamentally broken in some <laughs> ways, but people sit there and they play it because of the mechanical nature, oh, sorry, the physical nature, the tactile nature of things, you're looking at it, you understand the rule set that it's not going to ever fudge anything for you. So you, as part of this magic circle and this agreement, this unspoken agreement as a player, you know that sitting down, you're going to engage with this, the chaos of randomness. Um, And that it's just not going to go your way sometimes. And you might be like, ah, bullshit game or whatever, but it's not going to stop you from playing board games moving forward or whatever. In video games, something that we came up against massively, and I think honestly that we still over-indexed on the random, is exactly that, is that we came into a genre, because it's still it sits under the top-level strategy genre of a, in Steam, so it's a strategy video game. And strategy video games have a long history in games of being deterministic, like right. very much so. If I'm a strategy gamer, I have a plan. Like even in something like Age of Empires, I know the hit points of like my units. I know how much damage they do. I'm going to get 40 of those and some of these. And I'm going to ex- come up with a plan. And it's my skill level and my tactics that are actually going to dictate whether that's successful or not. Not some fucking dice roll or something going on behind the scenes. So, for example, quests were purely random in in Armello. So we would be like, if you have a 70% chance, then... You have a 70% chance, right? But like obviously post-launch, we had to fudge that. I think it's we bumped it up by like 10 or 15% or whatever just to give people a bit more of an edge. You know, that's a You mean thing. behind the scenes? Behind the scenes, yeah. Do they know about this? No, they're finding out right now, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then uh, I've I've felt that. Yeah. I felt like I'm like, I feel like I'm winning this more than I probably should, just yeah. because but I like I feel like I only know this because I've lived in this world for 20 years. Yes. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and like it, you know, it it feels if I'm not thinking of it in terms of like a programmer, yeah. like it feels right. Yeah. You know? I mean, like, yeah, I won because I'm the hero. Yeah, you know? totally. Like I made the, you know, I, I took a risk and it paid off. Yeah, it feels Look good. I that. think my favorite, my favorite one of these like game design hacks is the classic, like, I think it was in Bioshock or whatever. The last bullet in your clip does 10 times the damage <laughs> of every other one or something. Cause it gives That's you that moment yeah, of like yeah. that clutch save yeah. or you just survive. Um, that's, that's, we did, we do a bunch of that stuff all around our mallow, but I actually, as I was saying, I don't think we did it enough. Um, and even just the dice rolls, like the nature of, we had to add mechanics to the game later on, like piercing dice and all these other things that gave you deterministic ways by burning cards or whatever to actually help control the random a bit more. We right. even actually capped the amount of good random that could happen, like the number of explodes, like your dice re-rolling and stuff. Was that, like, oh, that's interesting because I, I played it, I played it when it came out. Yeah. But then I played it again recently in preparation for the interview. Mm-hmm. And like, I was like, explode pool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, that's something that's that That's a got, new thing. Yeah, okay. that came in really late. And that was yeah. to control the fact that when you would be playing, someone could just <laughs> like just decimate you yeah. like through it. And obviously if you're that player, 
like the one who's decimating with your continuous explodes. It's a game moment that you'll remember for a long time. But if you're the other player, it's completely, yeah. it's a, a huge emotional low. Yeah, so that's interesting because that, that's one of those things where the line between single player and multiplayer gets interesting. Exactly. Right, yeah. because if this was a primarily single player game, or just a single player game. That would be fun. Then you'd be like, well, we'll just not let that happen to the AI behind the scenes yeah. and it can happen for the human. Yep. But if you commit to making a multiplayer game, you just can't, you know, can't you've lost that. that. You've lost that design color, right? Yep. And we don't, because Armello's multiplayer is essentially just the multiplayer. Sorry, Armello's single player is essentially just the multiplayer with AI. Yeah. We don't do anything behind the scenes to, to change that game or do stuff like you're saying like oh we you know let's lessen the amount that the ai can actually have explodes we don't do any fiddling in the background on that so if you're you know the ai is playing under the same rules that a single that a person would be playing in multiplayer um because we designed our mellow from the start to feel like one of the design goals was it should feel like you're on this sort of your own little hero's journey and that you are the hero of our mellow even though you're doing it with four with three other heroes that's why we have a quest line that are very reverent to you as a player even like the way in which the game starts and stuff and really setting up that context and the premise for you. But it's going back to the question of like, you know, randomness or no randomness and like board game mechanics, like some things work really well, for example, and you'd be surprised, like stealth is a perfect example. In a board game, stealth is done by, you know, you roll against my stealth or whatever your right. perception against my stealth. Um, in Armello, the player is just stealth. That's you like, you cannot see them on the board. Obviously we don't render them if you're another player. Um, and that is just something that players, I think, again, through fantastic conventions laid down before us in video games that just works so well. Like yeah. one of our base game, uh, one of our base characters, Zosha, that came out with V1.0, she's just like stealth all night. Like every night she's one of the most played players and, or most played heroes. Um, and it just, it just, her mechanic is so powerful. Like it's, she's such a powerful hero, but because it's a very understandable um uh, mechanic and because players have tools to you know um counter it like you know casting a ranger's card or something to where you think that she might be um it's really it really really works yeah. well for the game now i haven't really thought about this that much but there is a limitation with stealth because you see a you know you see a, a character moving they're gonna move in a forest yes they're stealth yeah but you know where they are well <laughs> yes, but if there's a chain of forests, they may be moving through them. You may not know. Right, but, but you, you, you're, should... you're right in noting noting that it's restricted, right? Yeah. Like you have a certain amount of options there. It's not like players are stealth the entire time, day and night through the board, also because of forests. So the stealth mechanic in Armello is you're stealth at night on forest tiles. But during the day, they might just pop up two tiles over them where you thought or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's one of those weird issues that I sometimes get stuck on because um, – I feel like I wouldn't want to encourage players to like watch the screen like a hawk, you know, yeah. between turns so that yeah. like if a character, if a character stealths, um, like you, you should have known where they were. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You could even imagine a version of a game where it showed you this is the last spot this unit was. Yes. Was, was seen. Yeah. Right. And maybe it doesn't even animate. Like if they go into a forest, like let's say you have a tile yeah. and a f two forests on either side. Yeah. If they choose to go into one of those forests, yeah. you don't show the, the animation to yeah. other players. Yeah. Because then at least they could credibly be in either yes. forest. Yeah. I get what you're uh, saying. And you show that they're last visible on this spot. It In practice, it sounds like, a you know you know, the game has still worked with it. Yeah, but like, yeah. These are, these are little things I always like worry about but for these very chunky mechanical games. You it know? works well in our mellow because you might like be, um, 
you might be moving your character close to them, like your hero close, yeah. and then you, like, cast a throwing axe or something, and then all of a sudden you see, like, and they, right. they come out of stealth. It gives the other players these moments, like these little victory moments as well of being able to, and again, it's like a 30% chance, you know, they're in one of these three tiles. Yep. It's not like, oh, my God, where's that assassin character gone in the game you know we're not going to be able to see them in fact there was a king's declaration so every dawn there is a mechanic where the player who has the most prestige can vote on a king's declaration and they get a choice it's a binary choice one of two and then that those stay in effect for the next for that day and the next turn which is night I mean, they get descendingly more crazy as the king falls deeper into madness. Um, and it's one of the privileges that you get of being the prestige leader. And there was one that we, I think we actually just removed from the game in the end, which was um, that characters are like stealth during the day as well. And so the game was just wholly unfun. Yeah. Like not knowing where anyone was for the yep. next two turns. It was just terrible, actually. Um, and so, yeah, we just removed it from the game. Later on, that King's Declaration just commented it out. No one no one really complained or noticed or anything like that. Yeah, that was a good sign. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. But it, I remember going to catching up with um, um, Tharsis. Um, Zach. Designer, Zach, yeah. Um, Zach in, um, in Chinatown. And we were such a lovely dude we had such a good night because both of us had just come off the back of our mellow or were deep in it he was in tharsis and i was in our mellow yeah, and two just very heavy dice games yeah and we were just like lamenting this like area of game design that we just wandered into coming from tabletop um and like making these video games and just hitting this like this player sentiment of needing determinism in their games. Like there is still, we actually have a warning. You can see it today on the Armello store page about Mm -hmm. the degree of randomness in the game. So Armello as a game, the entire conceit of how you play it is that the game is very, very random, like a board game. It's a digital board game, but the mastery comes from anticipating that randomness and exerting your influence over it so that it rot, so that the odds go in your favor. But at the end of the day, doesn't matter how well you've played a game, you are always still stepping in and then rolling dice against the king or something. Like you're going to have those rolls. It's going to come down to a dice roll, but you're just trying to slide that as far along as you possibly can on that scale. Yeah. 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 I was definitely wanted to talk to you about the randomness. Yeah. Um, a little because there's a lot of, a lot of interesting stuff to talk about there. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, I was surprised. I'd forgotten how much randomness was in the game. Yeah. Um, it's definitely, you know, the continuum from like uh, chess to, uh, uh, roulette, yeah. right? It's 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 <laughs> we're more on the roulette it's side. It's closer yeah, to roulette sure. than like a yeah. lot of strategy games are, right? Yeah. Um, is that like do you sh- do you share like is your audience a more yeah. traditional gamer or is that has that led to a different type of audience? Because there there are pluses. Mm. Like, do you know uh, what Richard Garfield says about like uh, mana screw? No, no. Okay, so you know that's the typical complaint about yes, right. magic, right? Yeah. Is like you don't. You, you know, you, the mana, you don't, what is it? You don't draw your mana or whatever. Mm-hmm. Anyway, yeah. you get mana screwed. And, uh, you know, Hearthstone did away with that, yeah. right? Um, and it's a it's a very typical thing people complain about. They're like, if I was to design magic, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, yeah. what, what he says is that he feels like it, mana, mana screw is really important. Of course, who knows? He may be, you know, past, you know, justified. <laughs> there's an there's <laughs> no way. I mean, the thing is you design a game like that. You're kind of stuck with these choices you made. Of course. Yeah. Um, like one thing I like is on the back of a magic card, it says like deck master or something. Yes. Right. Yep, yep. That was, they, they had a plan for a bunch of different versions of magic, but I guess they realized afterwards, like, 
uh, well, we can't change the back of the card <laughs> because every card has to look the same. Yeah, so like yeah. the, 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 the back of the magic card, which has been, <laughs> you know, billions same, of them yeah. printed there. It's just because they're stuck with this decision they made, you know, 25 years ago. But at any rate, uh, he says masker is very important to, so that a, a, a worse player can beat a better player. Huh. Right. Interesting. Like, you know, if, if, if the game didn't, if the game had less randomness, it'd yeah. be too much more like chess. Yeah. And there's, there, there's, there's, you can demonstrate your skill yeah. so well in, in magic yeah. that, um, he was afraid, he was afraid it would drive off, mm. you know, less, you know, inexperienced players or yeah. pe players with worse decks. Right. Yeah. I and mean, that's yeah. another uh, issue with magic. Yeah. If it was totally just skill mastery, like yeah. that's it. Yeah. And that's not so that's, it's not necessarily that's the right choice for every mm -hmm. game, yeah. but it's just, it's an aesthetic choice, right? Yeah. And I think it leads to potentially a different audience. Yeah. And I would say that, yeah, definitely we have a different audience than, like, we just don't do well with the strategy gamers or, you know, even some of the hardcore, we have some RPG gamers that come along because it has RPG elements. And a lot of them, they really just look for this determinism where they're the one that is like in control and the game makes them, it's a power a power exercise for them, a power fantasy for them. And that's not Armello, like, as you heard before, like single player and multiplayer are the same. There's no like fudging in single player that makes you more powerful than the AI or whatever. And what we get from it is exactly what Richard is talking about. Like we, Armello is something that people still tell me to this day that they play with their kids or that they play with their nan or something like that. And you can jump into Armello and it has this incredible depth where like we've had someone win a game of Armello in one turn. Like, because they just, like, figured out the perfect combination of, like, all these cards to just get from the clan grounds to the palace, penetrate the palace and kill the king in one turn. It's insane. Right. Best speed run I've seen of Armello. Um, so the depth is there. It's just crazy. People have put over a 1,000 hours into the game. But what it gives us by having this degree of randomness, and I will say fully on record that I think if we were to do it all again we would probably have it be a degree less random. Like we would try and find some way of having the floor of randomness be lower. Um, sorry, sorry, higher. So basically what that means is that we want those moments where your kid can come into the like into the palace, like banish you out because they get a banish card into their deck, banish you out and then do a great roll and just blitz through the palace and win the game out of nowhere. Like, Armello, if people people always say on the forums when they're defending the game is like, because someone will be like, oh, you know, this game sucks. I like, you know, I was all doing all these quests and then something happened and now that whole question and someone's like, no, 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 you can still win. Like Armello is in a game that, Armello is a game that you can win on the last turn. Like if you get the right coordination of things randomly, you know, um, it's a, again, it's sort of like turning the odds in your favor and leveraging the the game systems against itself. Um, but it gives us those emotional highs that you don't get in a lot of strategy games, you know, where you will, you know, emotional highs in a lot of strategy games come from, yes, that plan was executed perfectly, or maybe a couple of happy accidents that happen inside that plan. Um, and, you know, and your execution of it, but in our mellow, like the wildest shit can occur, you know, and it, and because there's four players in there, you're sort of just ping ponging and bouncing off each other. And the people that do really well, with Armello and tend to love Armello. And there's no, there's no coincidence that I'm one of these people, these types of gamers, is you can have the worst game of Armello and you can kind of laugh about it and love the story that you just went through. And because it was when we started the game and that that day in the coffee shop that we're talking about, we we knew that we wanted to make it like a story, whatever we're making, wanted to make it a story generation machine. 
And so Amelo is designed to do that, like through the cards, through every, like all the cards are sort of framed at ways of like even the art and everything to like tell a story, you know, like I was mugged by the Merry Thieves and then I went and I did this quest and I had to, you know, meet the Mac, the Yak Miner, but they fell off the cliff. And then I, but then I, you know, was, um, I, attacked a king's guard who was stealthed in a thing and yep. now i've got a bounty so that's another important thing about randomness it's, 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 it helps people get their ego out of the game yes like i'm pretty sure this is another thing that richard talks about when he talks about like like why mana screw is a positive mm. is that like when you lose it gives you something to blame yeah it's not because you made any mistake yeah it's because you got screwed which right? is good and bad because yep. In Armello, for people like me, it's like, oh, well, it was the randomness, but that was a wild ride and that person's victory was crazy and blah, blah, blah. But, but, and, but um, because it's a transparent digital board game, yeah. you can see the path. Yes. Right. True. Like, I think that's super important. Yeah. But also what it means is some players don't want something to blame. You know, like mm-hmm. some players want themselves to blame and only themselves. I think a lot sure. of yeah. a lot of video game design conventions and the way that video games are designed is like, and I totally understand this. For example, Jump Light Odyssey, we're sort of having problems with this in the design at the moment in early access, um, is that you can sort of fail through no fault of your own. You know, and players just some genres that just is not acceptable. Like it's just blanket, black and white, not acceptable. You know, I should not learn by dying or I shouldn't fail because of this game systems or whatever. I should fail through a fault of my own and I should be aware of it. But our mellow isn't that at all. Like our mellow is, and we have players that come to it and are like, all this bullshit happened and it's so random and I couldn't win the game and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, well, yeah, it's like, it's a four player game. There's only one winner and they get the matches go for 90 minutes to two hours. Like you got to go into our mellow. And also there's only five hit points, you know, on each character. Yeah. Like it's, and because of, again, Game of Thrones influence, we wanted the consequences of the world to be dark and the combat to be meaningful. And we knew that death would be a prescient thing. And so there's just a number of players that just do not, enjoy that they want to go to a game and they want to have that power fantasy where i'm going to exert my mastery over this game and the only thing that's going to get in the way of that is my is if i fail and i should be able to whenever i fail i should be understand what i could do better and then apply it to the game and then win the next time but you can play 20 straight games of armello and never win you know yep um, yeah. So yeah, more uh, more contradictory design advice for, <laughs> for the listeners because it's it's totally true. Like both of these things are very important. Yeah. And you kind of just have to decide what type of game you're making. Yeah. And, and kind of commit to that. Ty said, um, our creative director and you know um, my business partner. He he was one of the ones that brought the. So you know we were doing the prototypes and every. Wednesday, we would meet up the four of us at the time and we would bring a new version of the prototype and we would play it and we would talk about it. Um, and then we would do some business stuff and then we'd, we'd give it to someone and then they would be responsible for the next version of, um, that would come next week. And Ty was responsible for the sort of, it was like version 10 that he brought. And it kind of had a lot of the mechanics that made Armello what it was, you know? Um, so for example, he placed the the king in the center of the board, like this Fisher King that had a series of perils around him. And um, he brought the trickery deck and stuff. And this stuff, a lot of it came from Solium Infernum. But another place that it came from was Talisman. Like he often mm-hmm. says that his goal with Armello was to fix Talisman, you know. Mm. Um, but Talisman as a game is like exactly that. Like you need, if it's this adventure story, if it's a story generator that's telling this hero's journey or this adventure tale or this tale of these competing adventurers, like that snakes and ladders style mechanic of like actually just luck not going your way and falling back behind and moving forward again and progressing and fighting these systems and exerting your mastery over them. That's all part of the storytelling element. 
And so if you're not coming to Armello with that um, egoless ability to be able to do that, then yeah, some players absolutely bounce off it. And I don't think, I'm not saying it as a way to justify the game. I think that's a beauty of the game. And I think that's a really special element of Armello. But if we could have our time again, like if we were doing Armello 2, we would absolutely try and design it in a way that, like I said, that the floor of the randomness is way lower. So like the actual, the the snakes, you know, you don't slide as far down as you can progress up on the ladders because it, it just does create, um, Darcy, our old community manager, was sort of honing on it when we were talking about negative reviews or stuff like that. Because, you know, with every iteration of the game, every major update, we'd push the meta in particular ways and yep. the randomness would shift and sometimes people would just have a really hard time of it. And he would say the worst thing about this is that it creates these spikes of like emotional lows. Mm -hmm. And really what we should be going for is like you can have emotional lows in a game, but you don't want them to be so deep that they drive people to negatively review your game or stop playing altogether, that it becomes an exit point or a point of grievance. Um, but you want emotional highs as high as they can possibly go. Like you want to elate players and surprise and delight them as much as possible. But if we can cap somehow those emotional lows, that would be amazing. But with Armello, unfortunately, because it's a multiplayer game, it's very symmetrical in regards yeah. to the four players. It was the moment that you cap the emotional lows, you're capping the, the emotional, emotional highs for another yeah, player. I was just about to ask about this. Like, because to me, this super leads into the question of, of why did you make this a symmetrical game? Yeah. Right. I mean, you had the board game model mm -hmm. in your head. Yeah. Right. But a board game doesn't have to be, it's really more of a format and market decision whether yeah. you make it a multiplayer game or not mm. right like because you could have totally made armello with very transparent rules yeah you know you got the nice six like the right thing about the six-sided dice is you didn't have to explain to anyone yeah. the combat calculations they yeah. see it they're like i know each one of those values is mm -hmm. like has a one-six chance of popping up right yeah. you can have all that stuff but it could have been a single player experience yeah. you know where you know there's various there's various you know you know monsters and perils and other things and other and, and you know there could be other characters in the world that are maybe a little more predictable um or, or that's, it does, doesn't matter if they're predictable or not but they're just you, you know if there's no other humans in the environment mm -hmm. you have design options you yes. don't in multiplayer yeah. so the, the question is like how how important has multiplayer been mm -hmm. and like you know like would there like what would have happened if you'd taken a different path yeah right i think that first of all there was no point ever where that that even was a part of the discussion. Sure. Like it was one of those things, that a decision that we sailed past without even realizing in the first conversation about Armello. It was always a board game that you play with friends, you know, and we're going to go out and we're going to backstab each other and stuff like that. So apart from it being a potential kind of social deduction style game, like the, the, the path was already set there. And so... Yeah that we were already off and running. And we liked as well the idea of, you know, this this the challenge as well of like trying to create a hero's journey of these competing heroes that are off and the mythos that that created and everything. So we we're already very far past that um, in regards to creating some sort of PVE thing. And I think honestly, if we'd done the PVE thing, like, I mean, Fives came out with Card Hunter along mm -hmm. the way, yep. which is like phenomenally like... Yep, so that's a great example. Yeah, right, yeah, yeah, exactly. Of how you do it in single player, yeah. Yeah, and it's just such a fantastic game. And to be honest, like... He's so talented and Martin helped out, you know, Jonasson, you know, jumping on and doing a bunch of the polish and everything on the game too. So there was just like, there's so much great stuff about that game that I'm really glad that we we sort of didn't go that way. But another reason why I'm glad is because Armello's tale would never have been what it was without the multiplayer. Mm -hmm. 
So Armello's retention for day seven is garbage. And it was garbage always. It's like you it's not a it's not what you would benchmark for a successful game. But our day 67 retention is off the charts. Like it's unheard of. And so what we created was we created this game that is a game that people never uninstall. It's the game that because we, we were shipping an update every six to eight weeks and DLC, you know, mm-hmm. two, you know, once a year or something like that. We had people, you know, and the stories that you hear is like, um, you know, oh, when we go home for family dinners, like me and my brothers, like we boot up Armello or I play Armello with my old role playing crew from college because now we have jobs all over the States or I play it with my nan in Russia or something like that, you know, um, we that's the sort of and what they'll do is they don't play it every night we're not that game that's a lifestyle game like destiny or whatever and we never were but though for some people you know they'll go through bouts of playing it a lot and then they'll they'll put it down and then when a new update comes out they'll be playing destiny together and they're like oh, i'm over this let's play something else and they're like oh well the new armello update come out let's jump back in so players would jump back in and we found as well that we put a lot in the game in regards to meta systems, um, like progression systems and stuff like that. And even like some of the jewelry unlocks and things to, to, um, what's the word promote? No, not promote, like drive players to basically progress from single player to multiplayer because the retention metrics in multiplayer were just so much higher. Like as soon as we got someone out of single player and playing multiplayer, they played Armello way more than they played in single player. But still, funnily enough, 70% of our players always in Armello were like single player. Sure. Like it's, it's, um, and that number is wild to me. Like considering the structure of the game and how successful it was because of the multiplayer, Armello did provide just such a hugely satisfactory and enjoyable experience like for folks playing single player that so many of them never actually even progressed in yeah this is this is the conundrum of a lot of strategy games yeah. I've, I've been living with this this issue for a long, <laughs> yeah, long time your entire career um, i mean civ obviously it's gonna you know it's gonna be even higher yeah um and i should say like you know, i asked you this question but like for me like almost every game i can if i can make a multiplayer first i, I do yeah like uh so four we did a multiplayer first before single player yeah. we did that with off world we did it with old world mm-hmm. um well it's one of pardo's big design lessons as well right is like right. multiplayer before single player well and you can um i mean I, i'm sure this is, is true for you, for for your, your team that like once you got you could get the multiplayer going quickly and you could make design mm. it, you know you could iterate on design very quickly because you weren't waiting for like the ai or anything yeah. right like you, yeah. and you you cared about the, the game because you were playing with you know your friends yeah right um but uh um but yeah all everyone who makes an rts will always tell you like yeah you'd be shocked like 80 70 80 percent of our players just never even touch multiplayer yeah, yeah like totally. and then maybe 10 15 percent of them dabble mm-hmm. a little bit and yeah. like 10 percent of them are the ones who actually are playing it like regularly yeah. and right? you know what's and, funny is that doesn't <laughs> It's funny because it does. <laughs> this, this the theme of this like podcast episode is going to be contradiction or hypocrisy, because it like it does shock me and it did shock me and surprise me playing Armello. But when I think about it, it doesn't at the same time because with Armello, like or well, myself as a player, I'm that kind of player. I don't play multiplayer strategy yeah. games. Like I don't play multiplayer a lot of video games. Like one of my guilty pleasures is the Modern Warfare's. You know, like when a new one comes out, I'll sit through it and I'll play it and I'll and I'll finish it. You know, um, but I'm. Um, I rarely jump into the multiplayer, even though it's fantastic and phenomenal, you know, Um, and especially so with strategy games. And I think even at League of Geeks, like when we talk about, so the the three business partners that are left is like myself, Blake and Ty, 
Um, and we have this really strong overlap of like liking strategy games and everything. But then outside of that sort of, you know, the things that we're interested in and the, even just the type of guys we are, like we're kind of very different from each other. But one of the things I think that, you know, and so we pull our games in different directions, is what I'm trying to say. And one of the directions that I've noticed that I pull our games in a lot is this single player focus is mm-hmm. like what are the plays what are the light narrative and again it comes from that legend of zelda like fable sort of stuff where it's like this abstraction and projection where just a small amount of like narrative elements can like add so much more meaning and context and give the players so much more to drive through with our um with like games and with our mellow so one of the things that i brought to our mellow was obviously a bunch we all contributed so much but like one of the things i distinctly remember was the secret quests so in Armello, we have these hidden quests or special quests where they're based on these very extreme outlier set of conditions that you can say, for example, one of them I think is, again, revealing on the podcast, but I think they figured it out by now. If you walk into a settlement at, that doesn't have a quest on it already mm-hmm. and you have one health and it's during the day, there is like a 5% chance to trigger the doctor quest. And so basically it's under the same structure as a quest, but it's just a single fire quest instead of a chained one. And it'll be this doctor that comes up and he's like, hey, looks like you're a little bit worse for wear. And you get this opportunity to either recruit him as a follower, um, heal yourself fully or take an extra like uh, gain an extra body so your health increases by one. Yeah. And it's like wrapped up in this narrative and they've got these beautiful sort of art that Ty did for each one as well, um, this custom bespoke art. And that's one of those moments, like the Bloodborne moment that I was talking yeah. about, where you can play a game and then and that sort yeah. of single-player little crumbs that you put in, um, I think you just really added so much to the experience. And this is one of the great things about digital board games, right, yeah. is that that's something you just couldn't do in a physical no. game because it would just be too much busy work trying yeah. to keep track of this stuff but also but it's this, in the box too and so you could read it at any point in well, time yeah. there's no mystery I mean, yeah. beyond the mystery but, yeah. but even just the like okay you got to remember all of these situations right <laughs> the, the, the game being handled yeah. that but what's interesting about it is like you're not explaining that to the player that's something that's not transparent to the player no. but it's 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 okay yeah and because the um, the output of it is still very transparent, yes. like when it happens, it's easy yeah. it's easy to understand. It's not yeah. confusing. It's like okay, yeah. it's, it's not just like a, a quest. whole new system or anything. Yeah, yeah, it's not this whole new system. It's just this some extra content that you're able to add that fits yeah. in with the other system, and you've got some some stuff running under the hood that can pop up this special thing that's very reactive to the current player's current situation. It just makes the experience better, and it's something, uh, and it, you know, it's just. That's just great. You know? Yeah. And there's no, the other thing that we did with those as well is to make them because like you said, they're not transparent. They had to be wholly good in the sense yeah. that there is yes. no real fail state. Yep. So quests have a fail state. You still will progress your health or whatever just by doing that. But there is a fail state and it's telegraphed as such, you know, it feels bad fa- failing quest. And so these is just three different options. And then we also design those options in a way that there's not just like good, better, best contextually you may want, oh no, I actually need full health right now. Yeah, or sure. I'll just take the one body or I'll recruit the doctor. Um, and they just added so much to the game. Like it's just incredible. Like those, those little hooks that you can put in to like pull people along. And I actually think that that extended the retention and the value, like that one system in the game extended the retention and the value of the game. Like do you highlight them in a way that they look different from other quests? Like um, just, yeah, they have custom, their structure is the same in regards to like the UI, but they have different like custom like trimmings on the UI yeah. elements, like illustrations. So, you know, it'll be, it'll be the doctor standing there as opposed to just the generic settlement artwork. 
And it just hits people in the right spot. You know, we all play video games for that little wonder and that little mystery. It's like, you know, it's why Dark Souls and Elden Ring and everything have been so successful to tap into this stuff. And yeah, um, yeah, we really, we, I think, it, I think it really served us well. Yeah, it's interesting because you want, you want the, I mean, you want the games to be fairly simple at the core. They yeah. have to be, to, yeah. especially in your case, to yeah. work as a board game, right? Yeah. But you want to find the space mm-hmm. for. Yeah, and most possibly for old world, that's what the event system is, yes. right? Like it's still a four X game, so there's still a lot of <laughs> a lot of mechanics and rules yeah. and stuff for people to get a hold of. But like, like players, you know, players on their twentieth, thirtieth game, they'll still mm. see events that they haven't seen before. Yeah, which means that they're like, okay, what else is you know what what else is out there? What else yeah. is, is is not you know? To me, exposed. it's so. And <laughs> this is, I think, it was like if I had to write like a top three Trent's top three game design lessons, like the golden rules. This would be one of them. Like, I, I don't think that there is game design without this, as far as I'm concerned. Like, this kind of meta surprise and delight that has such a profound impact on the on the player's projection of what the simulation is and what the possibilities are within the game. And the funny thing is, is that it's there. What I'm talking about is not actually even at the core of games a lot of the time. So, but it sits as this sort of like this addendum or this, so this appendix to the game systems that like you say is like not even in of its own thing. It's kind of like just, you know, subverting them or, or recycling them in a new and interesting way that I think is just, it's so important to to everything, you know. Like, and I think you, you see things. I remember, like the House House Boys when they did Push Me Pull You. Like, they made this whole game before Untitled Goose Game. It's amazing. Like, you know, the do you remember the game where it's like you're the the sausage people and there's like hands on and it's like a four player like local co op sports game, but you play as these grotesque <laughs> sausage people, it, no. freakish fucking weird game um they're so brilliant but there's an element in that game where in the hub world you're just like if you go along the fence you can then like go in through a hole and there's sausage dog either you play sausage dogs (laughs) instead of sausage people um and it's just like people talk about it all the time and i just i just i just love that stuff and so we try and sprinkle that in we've got so much of it planned for jump light odyssey and um solium infernum funnily enough already (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's the game that's the, that stuff stacked on top of itself yep. over and over again. So we haven't had to do any of that for Solium Infernum. It's already there. Vic's done that. But yeah. yeah. So for the single player and multiplayer thing, I, one thing that popped in my head is when mm-hmm. you talk about like, okay, maybe 70% do a single player, 30% yeah. multiplayer. That sounds kind of weird. But yeah. another way of putting it is 30% of your audience is your hardcore audience. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that kind of sounds about right. Yeah. You yeah. know, yeah, like, for sure. it's, it's, it's um, because I, I, I struggle with this issue a lot in that, you know, if you um, if you do make a single player only game, you have mm-hmm. a lot of you have a lot of options that yeah. you don't have otherwise. So it's still really hard to like you know do a whole cost benefit analysis. Yeah. But I think one thing that's interesting for Armello is because I think like transparency of rules is so important. Mm-hmm. Um, having people know that it does have total symmetry mm-hmm. between the different characters, mm-hmm. I think that makes the game easier to understand. Yeah. It makes yeah, makes sure. you you understand that like okay whatever challenges I'm facing are equal for my opponents. Yeah, exactly. Whereas if it was purely single player, to some extent, like at that point you'd start, you know, you'd have these characters out there who can do things yeah. that you can't do. Yeah, which is good. That adds variety. That could be interesting. But now you it means you have to like learn all this other stuff and whatever. So we do have that, but it's in a very contained sense. So the only asymmetry in the game really is in two forms. One is in the clan rings. Mm-hmm. So 
obvi- the characters, not obviously, because some people <laughs> listening wouldn't have played Armello. So Armello is this game with of heroes, as you've heard us saying, and each hero comes from a particular clan. There are five clans, six clans in the game, including all the DLC, and four heroes from each one. And so each clan has a set of rings that only heroes from that clan can put on. And mm-hmm. so there are particular things like, for example, wolves can, you know, be stealth on mountains, for example. So that's something that, you know, if you're... And this is in... Those sorts of things aren't things that matter too much to the player. Yeah, like they're I, I not going to shift the game. Yeah, I, I'm not sure I even would call... Yeah, I wouldn't yeah. think of that normally as asymmetry. Well, like, then the other thing is, I would say, which you're probably right, but the other thing I would say is then just the hero powers. So right. then every power, every hero has a what we like to call game-breaking hero power that is essentially like they get an exception on the rule set of the game that they can they can use and everyone has their own one. You know, like Sasha is just, you know, she's stealth at night all the time or, you know, um, Thane pierces um, shields or whatever, that sort of stuff. And that um, that is something that um, I think just adds so much character to the game and is a kind of asymmetry that is really fun to learn and encounter as a player, even if you're encountering that character on the board for the first time. Um, it's really cool to see them, like, players deploy those skills like they would in, say, a game like Dota or something like that. Right. I'm not saying that Armello is Dota. Yeah. <laughs> that's nowhere near Dota, but, yeah, we do really enjoy that. And that's that's super fun, you know, b- building those those rules and everything around around that crew. We're doing it in um, Solium. We've got Dark Arts for our, right. for our um, Arch Fiends as well. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I I think of it as asymmetry in terms of like people are playing like kind of a fundamentally different game. Right. Um, okay. Yeah. None of that. You then. know. I mean. Oh, yeah. you mean right? Okay. Yeah. I get. I get yeah, you put yeah. it down. I mean, you know, you, you know, you have um, character powers. I mean, right? You know, it's like all these things are a continuum, right? <laughs> um, but you know, they're they're playing. Yeah, even even the powers are like okay, everyone's got the power, right? Yeah. So that's just a, a thing that you know to look out for. Yes. Right. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, it's a. Uh, it's something I've I've struggled with some because like um, in old world we kind of committed to uh, like an actually asymmetrical single player game mm. right in the sense that um, when you start the game the AI actually starts with a bunch of cities and you yes, start with right. just a settler mm. right and the human player gets events yeah the AI doesn't yeah right so um, they are actually playing they're, a very they are actually different. Different the, game. the human yeah. can win an ambition victory yeah the ai doesn't get ambitions yes, at all yeah. right um and this is this has come from like making like three iterations yeah uh, uh more if you can call them, prototypes of 4x yeah. games where like you know i think that you know st- sticking to symmetry um just for dogmatic or like yeah phil- you know like whatever the right term for it is mm-hmm. uh is 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 isn't worth the the costs of yeah. it, but I think that for Armello is kind of this really interesting space because um, you can really fit all the rules in your head, <laughs> right? And that yeah. there's a real benefit if you can yes. do that, yeah. right? Um, and having having all the the characters be purely purely sort of classically symmetrical yeah. like has that that bonus. Yeah. So talking about it's interesting you brought up Tharsis because talking about uh, you know at at, you know, bringing up the rand. This is how we got to multiplayer in the first place, right? Mm-hmm. We're trying to have some sort of floor on randomness, so you have less negative experiences, right? And yeah. it's like, oh, okay, well, this is there's a big challenge here because what about multiplayer, so on and so yeah. forth. So Tharsis and Armella both have dice, but mm-hmm. uh, Tharsis is a game where it's input randomness, yeah. where Armello is a game where it's output randomness. Correct. 
Like, um, you know, for I'm sure I've said this like 10 times on the podcast, but like input <laughs> management just means, you know, you, you get the random, the random thing happens and you decide what to do with it. Yeah. In Armello, you you attack someone or you get attacked. Mm -hmm. You make some decisions and then the dice roll. Yes. Right. Yeah. Like, is, is that, um, I mean, I don't think people were even talking about those terms back in no. 2012. And Zach and I, when we, were, were... when we were drinking, <laughs> lamenting to each other, like the difficulties that we've had dealing with randomness and converting it to a video game um, in, you know, some bar in Chinatown, we, did, we didn't talk about that at all. Like, really? you know, we were talking about that, but not in those terms, you know, right. and, the, and the different ways in which people engage with it. And I, it's, re it's really interesting because... There are there is input randomness at different points in Armello where shit can just happen sure. to you as well, you know. Um, but it, you're right in that the core of it is this output randomness, and I think that there's just a fundamental thing like within humans, like not only in video games that obviously we don't we don't deal well with random. Like you know, Luke Muscat, the um, mm -hmm. design, de yep. designer at Half Brick and a Fruit Ninja and everything, he gave a talk at Game Connect Asia Pacific, our like our little GDC, I guess, kind of in in Australia. One year it was just on randomness. He was talking about like used to be books printed that were just like random characters or whatever. Like we've always had this like fascination of like with randomness, but like our inability to grasp it is just so endemic to us as a, as a species and as these like little meat machines um, that we just we just encounter it so much on our mellow. It's just it's just amazing seeing the the spectrum of how well players deal with it and what kinds of players deal with it is very different. And then, as you say, the different types of random and how they present themselves in the game yeah. and the decision space. Did Tharsis was an interesting one as well because, too, it's like it is that single-player game as well, obviously. Yeah. So there's no, there's none of that symmetry that Armello has as well. Yep, he had, he had those design colors were available to him. Yeah. Right, yeah, you know? yeah. Um, because I'm trying to think through, like, yeah, could you could you design Armello's combat so that you know the dice gets rolled ahead of time? Yeah, you know, before you go in, it's almost like a bluff I mean, type thing. Yeah, I mean, then that's kind of awkward because then it's like, well, the attacker gets to roll ahead of time, but the defender doesn't get an option. Yeah. Maybe you could have them both roll their dice during combat first, and then they play cards. But mm -hmm. then you have like a lot of. Uh, I assume one of the things that makes it work in multiplayer is everyone has to play the cards at the same time. Yes. Right. Yeah, exactly. Which we is have a super a important in, thing. Yeah. We have yeah. the timer in the middle yeah. that burns so down. It's, tr it's tricky. The thing too, is that it, we just gain so much from it as well though, even though, and I don't think that output randomness is like inherently a bad thing. Like I think right. for some players it obviously results in shitty experiences like we've spoken about, but there, it provided us with these tools, like the, the burning cards to, you know, basically guarantee dice results is something that just like worked from day one. Like the moment we had that in the game, that just, and I can't even remember if we actually got that from anywhere else or some other game that we pulled that from or whether we just sort of that came up with that during prototyping. But that was there in the paper prototype. It just worked super well. And the comp, again, like sitting around that paper prototype and like rolling those dice and that being combat, when you look, and even in the way in which we're talking about combat in Armello right now, we're almost talking about combat as like, the screen that you go to and the animations like attacking each other, but combat actually is the dice roll. Like, like that, the, all of the tension in combat is when those dice are rolling and bouncing around the screen. Um, and we even simulate it for the other players. Like we, you know, and you don't notice, it's funny, like you, when the dice actually don't land just cause we need to visualize it, but you know, basically the way that the client server works and everything, but like just even those dice bouncing around, that is the whole tension of like a tabletop, piece of combat that you would play and like you know when we were sitting around doing pen and paper role playing and you know trying to cut some ronin's head off or something like that when we were doing legend of the five rings and so there's something that when we talk about video games and board games it's like the the rolling of the dice is just 
is not a like removing that is like not an option and then because it was such a core part of what made that tabletop experience quick is the high level conceit of armello the question that we always asked was how do you bring a tabletop adventure to life like tabletop board game to life experience to life and so that was a huge huge part of it was that dice roll and as soon as we knew that that's sort of where the core of it was like everything sort of folded in around that yeah Mm. yeah i mean it's uh, almost i I assume you front the dice to some extent in your marketing right yeah because like to some extent that's an important way of making sure that the people who want to play, the people who are going to enjoy Armello end up playing Armello, yeah, exactly. right? Like, yeah. I think a lot of the times that's, uh, when we talk about negative Steam reviews, for example, mm-hmm. like sometimes that's a failure of marketing. Yeah. Totally. Right. You know, yeah. it's like, well, somehow this person, I know that happened with Offworld a lot where we got people who thought they were buying SimCity Mars, yeah. right? And it's not that game at all, right? And, yeah, totally. You know, they're like, this game is over in 20 minutes. It's yeah. like, well, yeah, it literally says that at the top there, <laughs> but like, yeah. Um, yeah, so we've got it. We've got it at the moment with Jumplight. Odyssey, we're in early access and like we're getting a little bit battered in the reviews, but it's because it's like what we've been in early access two weeks or something like that. It's early access, but we went actually, we do all of our publishing and marketing in house, and we we're like, we went as big as we could with the launch for early access um, because it was a busy month and it was just stupid. We just brought in like players who aren't early access players. They're like, this game looks dope, and they got it, and then they're like, it's not finished. What the fuck is this? And you're like, well, it's early access, and they're, but they're not an early access player. We just yeah, pulled yeah. in some random that liked the the capsule art because we did a takeover on PC Gamer or something like that, you know. Um, and so it's it's absolutely a thing. And we found as well, like RPG, definitely saying RPG in our little Steam header. When we say just has with RPG elements, there's a bunch of people who play the game and negative review it, and they're like, this isn't an RPG. <laughs> you're like, we didn't say that, <laughs> but I know that it's yes, it's our fault maybe that we put well, RPG. Super in. light yeah, RPG, yeah. RPG light, 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 light yeah, elements. Yeah, don't expect <laughs> RPG, but come and be pleasantly surprised by our super light RPG elements. Yeah. Um, yeah, so we definitely encountered a bit of that for sure. Yeah. So how did the game change? It's interesting to hear that, you know, that was, you went through a bunch of iterations as a paper prototype. Yep. Um, you know, that's, I think that that idea is kind of oversold for a lot of games because yeah. they change very much when they go, yep. to, you know, turn into a video game. But yep. I mean, for your game, you know, it seems, seems awesome. But like, how yeah. did, what what, what did something fundamentally change when you when you moved it over? Like, how did the ch- or what what were there any big inflection points for Armello, like yeah. design wise? That version ten of the prototype that was right. the big one. Um, and then because we were then it was like basically we did version ten point one two three four, and then the game was done. Then we were like, all right, please don't make us reprint three hundred cards and another board, and like it's just we're now hit the point of diminishing returns. We need to yeah. make this digitally. Um, but that was version 10 was a huge one. And that was, and what was, it, what was the problem with version nine version nine? I think it just didn't feel like a hero, like a hero's journey. It just felt a bit, a little bit too rote. It didn't have the sort of the mythos or like the narrative that we were looking for. Um, it didn't have the power creep of, you know, like an RPG and like just feeling like you're getting more and more powerful. But when with, with version 10, when we had that, political intrigue and we had the king in the middle and we had these items that you could like attach to your i remember we were playing it with a guy um uh chris wright who's you know the head of fellow traveler the publisher actually that run ludo Naricon. um they were doing some marketing stuff for us at the time because he just spun up surprise attack their marketing agency and um 
he was playing with us and he had this rabbit that was like flying around the board with these winged boots and this big sword and, you know, went in and slayed the king. And we were all like, when the game ended, we were all like hooting and hollering. And it was like, that's it. Like that's, that's the game. That's the, that's the experience. I think that was the one where version 10, like the actual experience that we discussed in that, in that coffee shop really came together. And before that we were playing good, fun strategy games, but they were kind of just like tactical. They weren't, Mm. they didn't have this, this narrative arc through them. Um, they didn't it, have this mythos. Like functionally speaking, what did that mean? That meant was that the quests or yeah, was it the, yeah, quest didn't, didn't really quest, quest didn't really exist for a long time. The first iteration ever um, was Blake had printed off just some satellite imagery on a big piece of paper and drew up grid lines and wrote some values on some pieces of paper, and we were basically moving like units around, and we knew. And that was like it was like fantasy units, but it just wasn't something to it. A big inflection point was heroes when mm-hmm. we knew that that came in pretty early. Like I think version two or three like just a single character yeah, single character okay. hero um and then that led us to like because we were shaping the product as we were going yep. as well we're like okay well now we know we almost have like a because the game again wasn't designed for pc or anything it was designed for ipad and mm-hmm. we were thinking about free to play at the time and stuff so we're like okay well now we've got a kind of league of legends structure where we can have champions and stuff and so then the clans came out of that and all this different stuff and that progressory. So definitely the hero was a big inflection point. Um, the trickery deck was a big inflection point, placing perils on the board as traps for people to go into the King in the center of the board, like this Fisher King with the perils around him. It, at first it was like a progressing spiral, similar okay. to talisman, like a mini talisman in the middle of the board that just sucked. And we simplified it by having, um, the actual, uh, skill sets of either side, like you roll your, you know, your wild or you roll your, other dice um that worked out really well but basically when we got to version 10 um the game didn't change much even when we got it to digital so we the first point that it touched other players like the public was we did a backer beta so all of our kickstarter backers we would send them a build every fortnight i think it was um and they gave us a bunch of fantastic feedback we had forums set up in there um and then we took it to early access. And I the big inflection point, there are a bunch of them. We had a talent tree and stuff that we're planning that never happened um, because it was sort of off the critical path and no one was actually paying interacting it, with yeah. it. Yeah, or paying attention to it. Um, that was a big one that left. And we were that was one of the ones that we were like, that was earth shattering to us that like people weren't, that was the biggest design problem in our mellow for so long that how do we get this thing on the critical path? But it was actually an early access um, really early on in early access that the core loop of Armello really came together because we had um, the palace in the middle that you, you needed to do a peril challenge to pass. So perils are you roll dice and there's a set number of icons or symbols that you either need to burn cards for or get, you know, dice results on that match them to get into the palace yeah. and to, you know, penetrate the palace so you can attack the king or present your spirit stones or whatever. Um, but that was too hard. Players were just finding that way too hard. Like they would play the game for an hour or something and they were still like bouncing off the palace. Um, so we knew that we needed this kind of progression, the talent system that players weren't interacting with that would help them get into the palace. But then also people were saying that quests felt shallow and they didn't feel like they had decent rewards or whatever. So I kind of like saw the, these the the three different sort of feedback areas and it's kind of really interesting when you're working with a community in early access because a lot of the time they don't say like hey you should do this instead of this well they'll say that a lot but they're usually not right you know but it's kind of the classic like feedback 
thing lesson that you first learn when you do like actual focus testing or feedback that they'll tell you is don't listen to what they say listen to what they sort of mean or what they're trying to communicate listen to what they what do they care about yeah what do they care about and so listening to those three things i was like okay well clearly the issue is that we're not progressing fast enough to get to a point to make the palace easier and all these other things aren't working so what if we just put the actual player progression in the quests so let's add a reward so it will actually make the decision of which quest you take more interesting because you've got a you know you are you am i upping my body or my spirit or my you know that wasn't there originally wasn't there what was the point of the quest just to get like a follower or to get there with the other. So there's two there's, sets of rewards. Right. There's the core progression of your skills. And, and then, then the there's like the follower or, or the extra card or yeah. something. But we were like, and at first it seemed crazy to like double stack the awards or whatever. Yeah. I remember there being a lot of conversation internally about it, but it was one of those things that just like worked immediately, yeah. like worked so well that you're like, oh, this is like the core of the game is progressing your character through this means to be able to be strong enough to then attack the palace. And you're constantly doing this like, Checking one of the things that I personally love about Armello, it's not for everyone, but the thing that I love about Armello is that you have a strategy for the for the match, but every single turn you're reassessing that strategy and you might pivot. You might pivot in a game of Armello seven to ten times um, because you get a new set of hands because of the randomness, obviously. You get a new set of hands or the circumstances change, or maybe you feel like you're now strong enough because someone's had a shot at the perils on the board. Um, and so you're actually now strong enough to get into the palace without finishing your quest chain yeah. or someone's getting close. So you just got to make a go for it. Did you consider for perils letting you roll first and then burn cards? Because it seems like that could solve a little bit of interesting of like, because that turns a little bit more input than output. Right? Yeah, we did. I think this the input output thing, we didn't really see it too much as a problem. Like the thing we wanted that, that decision of, um, when I go in, because you are sacrificing the dice that you're rolling as well, mm-hmm. we feel there's an interesting decision space there in regards to, well, I'm sacrificing dice to guarantee these results. Um, and I'm also sacrificing the cards as well. And so we did want that moment where you're kind of like in there burning cards beforehand and the bluff of like, you see them burning cards and you're like, oh, okay. Like, and obviously with perils, it's just you. Um, but then also we like the idea too of, you can just like, the, the, the classic strat for the palace is to just have a hand of cards that you can walk in and just burn them all. You actually don't need to yeah. don't need to roll at all. And I think if it was around the other way, you'd be forced to do this roll when you had the cards or, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've learned over time, like, oh, actually burning cards is good. Yeah. Because yeah. you're going to draw back up to your full hand anyway. Yes, right? the next turn, yeah. Um, but it's weirdly with perils, I like kind of feel like I lose the chance to actually roll my dice. I mean, like, I'm like... Right. I want to roll my dice. Yeah. Maybe I'll get lucky. Yeah. Like I'll never find out. I'll never get a chance to feel good about being lucky with my perils because I'm always burning my cards. You're you know burning your mean? cards to guarantee it. Yeah. Well, you could roll the dice. You could take your chances. Well, yeah, but it's too late then, <laughs> yeah. right? So. Yeah. There are cards. You, like I find you'll have, I'm not saying that what you're saying is invalid, but you will find times where you're like, fuck, I can't burn those cards. You have the symbols, but you're like, I need that card or something. But what you tapped into as well is the, um, actually the, the most like elite sort of core strategy for Armello is to cycle cards as fast as you possibly right. can. Whether it's burning them, playing them, the faster that you cycle your cards, the more opportunities you get to build like a solid hand to get items into your deck, to cycle out what's in your items or your followers. And and also to move, especially if you're doing like, for example, if you're going for a rot victory, which is like very hard, which is interesting talking about symmetry because we have four victory conditions that are very different, which also players didn't like as well. Sure. Like one of the big criticisms that we would see for the game a lot of the time is like, 
oh, most of the games are just like a prestige victory. And it's like, yeah, it's designed that way. Like that's the default. If basically if everyone fails at something, there will be a prestige victory, yeah. you know? The game has to end. Yeah, exactly. Um, but the rot victory is like only something like 2 to 5% of players ever get a rot victory, yeah. you know? It's a hard one. And that, to do that, to achieve that, to get access to those rot items in the deck, you just, because it's one of the reasons why it's so hard is because it, it requires that mastery um, level of playing where you're cycling decks at an exceedingly fast yeah. pace. That's a tricky one because you know what the the endowment effect is. No, I don't. It's a psychology thing that mm. uh, that comes up with with games a lot, which is that basically you value something you have more than something you don't have. Right. Even the thing you don't have, it might have. Yeah, more it's like value. one in the hand is better than two in the yeah, bush. Yeah, exactly. Thing. And yeah. I think that the the deck cycle, the, the card cycling thing is interesting. Like I appreciate it as a mechanic. Yeah. But I won't be surprised if there's some players who just never get over the hump with it because yeah. they're like, I don't want to give up my cards. Yeah, it pushes up. These, so these hard might be like valuable, you know. Like yeah. I've got them now, you know. And it, yeah, I could it, use them for this. It reminds yeah. me of the thing in like a lot of deck building games, uh, you know, your Dominion type games, yeah. like like the best strategy usually is to get rid of your bad cards. Yeah. Trashing cards. Yeah. But a lot of players never, they don't do it. They never get used to that because it just feels weird to them. Yeah. Right. Like, and so it's this like, like counterintuitive strategy. So I, I don't know. I mean, like, I think, I think it's, I think it's, 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 it's good where it is. It's just this interesting thing to kind yeah. of think about that. Like, probably some players would be resistant to what is probably like the most important, one of the most important strategies. I think you'd be bang on in saying that. I think that absolutely. And this is, you know, things that we find ourselves and the community coaching players in. So they'd come in and they'd say like, I can't get a rot victory and be like, you have to cycle. Like that's one of the ones that we're like, you know, cycling your cards is good. And a lot of people are like, oh, okay. So there definitely is a psychological hump there for people to yeah. just dive in and start throwing away cards essentially because the good players will also get into perils. Like they'll step onto perils for an opportunity to just basically get rid of cards yeah. without I, actually- I want to get rid of these rot cards. Exactly. You know? Yep. Without having to spend them or use them or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Um, yeah. Let's talk about the rot for a little bit. Yeah, cool. Like when do when did that come? Does that- I mean, that's not, like it's kind of a orthogonal thing that got, you know, added to the game. Yeah, that is like this interesting spice. So like, how how core was that to the game? It was very core from the start because the king has the rot. Yeah, sure. And we the whole game is like the sort of this exercise in duality. You know, like night and day, wild and rot, and everything. And so we knew that we wanted we knew that we wanted that in there. Um, in regards to when you could get it as a player, I think we started playing around with it very early on. But it was a wonky mechanic for a very mm -hmm. long time. We spent a lot of time through early access and everything massaging it. And my memory is fuzzy. But I do recall it coming sort of online in the form in which you see it now in the game um, pretty late. Like yeah. I think it would have been, it wouldn't have been, actually, I do remember us doing an update post-launch that was called From Below that was like maybe our fourth update or something where we added a bunch of rot stuff and mechanics to the game. Mm -hmm. So it might have actually only really come together in its final form like, God, in the first year of release or something like that. Right. Yeah. And what was the, like, what was the design goal? The design goal was to give you basically this power creep um, option, this track where it was the jungling track, essentially, mm -hmm. where you could um, go off and basically be this dis disruptor in the game that could come around and have this incredible late game power, but basically through incredible obstacles and friction in the lead up to that. So essentially you're like, I'm going to put weights on myself and my character and I'm going to have to 
medic like the drain on your health like every every turn and all of this stuff it it basically adds management layers in exchange for a power curve that comes back around at the end of the game and is especially powerful against the king because the whole rot mechanic is if you have rot well not the whole rot mechanic but one of the core things about it is the way that functions is if your rot is higher than your opponent's rot then you get their Mm -hmm. rot value in extra dice it's actually not mentioned on the rot entry in the game (laughs) that does not surprise me whatsoever i I read through that and i was looking looking, i was thinking through and like this doesn't sound worth it like why would that be there Like, but I was like, I thought I read this someplace else, but it's not listed here. Then eventually I went by the buffs on the buffs page where it, it says it. corrupted, then it explains that when you're corrupted, but it doesn't say that on the, uh, uh, on the rot section. Man, so. the irony of making a game and supporting it with updates and everything uh, for seven years. Yeah, that's why I was almost afraid of documentation. I was like, don't write anything down. <laughs> yeah. This is all going to change anyway. Um, the, whatever the game dynamically tells you, that's the rules. Yeah. Um, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, I tried, I tried a rot run recently and it was like, this is so hard. It's like, I'm not sure. It's like it, I did have a trouble of like, like where am I supposed to get rot? Like yeah. it seems like sometimes you get stuck with it, and so then you're tempted to be like, well, if I'm stuck with it now, I should double down on it. Yeah. But it does seem difficult. Like I, I ended up, I had like seven rot, but mm. then, then I was went to kill the king. Like oh, like, oh crap, yeah, the king gets a new rot every turn. Yeah, and he has eight, so now I'm so totally, you're racing him yeah. for rot as well. And if you miss. It's, it's really rough as well because if you don't kill him, then he's going to get a rot the next dawn or the next yeah, evening. I mean, then and then you've got to go off and get more rot. Yeah, it's it's exceptionally hard, but it has some beautiful little elements that come from it. So, for example, you will get a point of rot if you die to a bane. Um, and so that has this beautiful, like... Um, narrative emergent gameplay that comes from players at the start of the game basically sacrificing themselves to Banes around the yeah. map to try and get rot. And that was something that we just totally didn't intend but sort of came about emergently um, through the systems. And, yeah, there's, there's, I think there's a lot to like about it. I, I, don't say, I wouldn't say it's a perfect system. We did struggle a lot with it for, for a long time. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful little element of the game that just it gave the community so much as well in regards to like the it's the hardcore new game plus crowd you know they get to be like to talk about their rot victories and also it gave us another edge to characters you know for example one of the characters sana is like one of the original heroes she's in the original announced trailer she's just cast as our sort of like priestess archetype very classical but she's one of the best rot play rot heroes in the game so it kind of gives every like character or hero this kind of inverse play as well as where they're sort of their mechanics could interact with the game in a different way right yeah yeah so let's talk about the the post-launch of mm. of armello because that's kind of an interesting phase as well yeah you know you guys have been working on it for years yeah. um what i mean i guess what are the most important changes how how have you handled the updates yeah. and just like what um Anyway, let's start with that, I guess. Yeah. First of all, let me say that I'm not going to remember all, sure. <laughs> all of them because I think there's all up. We did like more than a dozen major free like themed updates between early access and post-launch. But we released the game into early access in late January 2015. We were in early access for about seven months. And so September 1st, we released the game into B1.0. And at about that point in time, we had had such success in early access because around you got to remember around that time, early access was in early access itself kind yep, of, you sure. know, and there had been a bunch of high profile failures across the platform too, where 
even folks like I remember Double Double Fine had what was it, like space based DF9 oh, yeah, or whatever yeah. that didn't work mm-hmm. out for them, and they sort of that game didn't see itself through. And I think there are a bunch of developers as well that finally released their game and then had the catharsis of releasing, and <laughs> you know, then just stepped away from it. You know, um, so it had a really bad rap, and so you can actually see it in, on if you go on YouTube now, it's still there. We have a our video, our release trailer for early access was like a Kickstarter style two camera piece where I was like. Hey, we know that Kickstarter, I'm sorry, early access is a bit rough and blah, 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 but we're going to do this right. Anyway. Launch- yeah, our, our early access launch video for Offworld was sort of, was, was looked kind of like a Kickstarter video yeah. because it was like interviews of the team, yeah. like with you know, some some game that us from the team talking about what we're trying to do, yeah. what our goals are for the project. And yeah. like, yeah, we had a sense of like, we wanted people to feel like they were, you yeah. know, part of something, know that this was, this is not a normal yeah, yeah exactly so game. we did that and i wish we'd done it for early um early access now with jump light odyssey to be honest but um that that was um that was a really great period of time for us the game just obviously you know became something that we never expected it to be in regards to like how it came together and and everything um and the 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 degree to you know just even working with the community was really fun we and we also had some controversies in it too like we had a, the community were up in arms and we got review bombed at one point because they were like exclusive heroes heroes for kickstarter backers and stuff uh-huh. and you know just we ran into a controversy we weren't short of controversy in early access anyway um and then so we released in september 1st 2015 and we'd had so much fun and our community had been growing and the game had been growing and I actually was in Seattle as well then around release. And I was hanging out at Valve that day with with a mate. And I was I had some time with Robin Walker at mm-hmm. Valve, um, who's famously, you know, sort of like, you know, one of the sort of um, like veterans at Valve who, would, you know, was behind TF2 and a lot of the stuff there and everything. And I was talking to him about how we'd gone in early access and, you know, what our plans post-launch. And I said to him, I said, Robin, this early access style of development, like there weren't, people weren't even calling it games as a service at that point in time. I was like, this early access style of development, like it's kind of just gotten better for us. The game's gotten better and it's like growing and everything. Is that an early access phenomenon? Or is that something that like would ha- would work for us post-launch? And he just kind of put his hand on my shoulder. He's like, you get it. He's like, this is why we, one of the reasons why we did early access is because like this style of development, especially for multiplayer games, just works so well it's like you should absolutely continue to do it post-launch and we were like okay because we had all these ideas as well like the game we kind of fumbled the launch of armello a little bit you know some we were first time studio some things didn't land properly and everything and so we knew we wanted to do at least one update but we had so many ideas and everything and the game had launched had gone well commercially too so we could scale the team a little bit and it hadn't done well enough to like um, you know, make us all multimillionaires or anything like that. But it also hadn't like done so poorly that it was like, okay, everyone pack it up and we had a good run. So we're kind of like, all right, well, well, I guess we'll just keep going then. Um, and so we, yeah, we entered this early access style of development. So in early access, we updated the game every month, but in this um, post early access, we did it every six to eight weeks. We called them, uh, we called them internally BNUs, big named updates. And so every one, we would release an update every six to eight weeks. But in the lead up to it, the two weeks before, we would launch a mini site, like a website, and we would have it like just the logo and the name of the thing. So let's say, for example, From Below was one of them. That was our sort of rot themed and it would always have a theme. And then we would reveal like some artwork, like basically like this blur would progressively like be revealed every kind of day. 
um, over the over the course of the couple weeks leading up to it. And we would reveal features and we would talk about them on social media and, you know, do posts on steam and everything. And, um, it just kind of got the community rabid. Like they just loved it. And like trying to look at, you know, reverse engineer what was coming and guess it and everything. And we got that actually, um, the awesome noughts crew from Ronimo games. So mm-hmm. Yoast, who's now doing station to station, we were good mates with them and they were doing it for awesome noughts. And so we took that and sort of improved upon it, I would say. Um, and it just it just worked really well for us, and so we did that every six to eight weeks. How how meaty could the features be like for you know releasing something every to be honest, month and a half? Some I look back at, and I'm like, you know, there was there were kind of like it was like the rule of threes. Some were just like we knew that there was some content in the game that was meaty for players, but was super easy for us. Like new rings or something is just like our gameplay programmer just pressing some values in something, you know? Yeah. Um, and we have new content um, and then we get one of our artists to do a ring, but that's a meaningful change and impact on the game and the meta that people were into. So there was a degree of that content, but every time we tried to ship at least like one to two sort of major features um, or big improvements or overhauls of things that were really quite meaty. And we would do a stack of cards as well that went out that had a general theme around the update so you know from below the rot one um had a um like banes the way that rot worked and banes and how their progression and everything work completely changed we added in like 15 or 10 new sort of rot cards um a bunch of quests um yeah it's and it was it was quite meaty but we had this thing where it was like um, we drop features, we don't slip dates. So we would have in right. the studio, we would have a book, like a, a TV monitor that I would just have like a Google Slides, we would cast to it all day. And it had like the the sort of the features and the upcoming updates and the dates. And everyone would just sort of move towards that. We used a Kanban production methodology. And like if something fell, looked like it was getting going to be dicey because we had a soft lock and a hard lock period to make sure the game was stable and we would just push it to the next update so right. every update did was the, kind of like 50 percent of what we hoped it to be but the, still the, the blurred features changed sometimes? <laughs> no <laughs> usually by that time it was it was pretty solid like when we were a couple because by that time we were already in lock okay so we would know where we're at okay. but yeah they would definitely come in close for sure and that worked well for us i think we pivoted whilst we're talking about the sort of strategy of this we during that 2018 year where I was saying we we're doing everything else, we were like, okay, well, shit, we don't have the bandwidth. We're still a small team to focus on Steam like we used to. So let's we're going to do a 2.0, but we're going to say that that's next year, like the big major version number shift or whatever. Yeah. And then we'll do Road to 2.0, which is just smaller content style drops on the way up to that. But we'll do them every month. And that way we won't have to do new branding. We won't have to have big feature drops or whatever. And that was just the worst idea. Like it just did not work for us. There was something really specific about having like a new product release always. And even Darcy, our community manager, mentioned it when it came to our interaction and engagement on socials. He's like, before we used to have like this new fresh visual identity that would come up and when people scroll their feed, they would see it. But now it's like we're using the same logo for a year for like it would be Road to 2.0 March update or Road to 2.0 April update. And it just didn't work. It didn't have the same traction. And I think people kind of saw through it as well, you know, and look, the Steam audience, they were like getting still getting content. We're still supporting the game, but like they weren't getting it to the degree that they were before because we were putting the game on Switch or we were putting the game on on, you know, mobile devices or whatever. And I think honestly that... um, if I could, you know, I can't talk for the other guys, but I think if I could have my time again um, on our mellow, I just wouldn't have done any of that. And I would have just kept focusing on Steam. No, no ports? 
No ports. Just well, no, really? I wouldn't have done. I would have mere culpit and said, hey, sorry, everyone who wants the mobile version, no mobile. I probably would have done Switch because that was not too hard for us to do and it was a great, really great performing platform for us. In fact, that was one of our crew internally. We didn't want to do it. And then I was like, if you can convince us that it's worth it, like, and you will... Um, You'll, um, our tech director was like, and also if you do it, like, then, then, um, then we can do it. And he convinced us. He was like, when did the little market research and everything, and we're like, okay, let's give it a shot. And what it, about the other consoles? Really well, they unfortunately they suffered the same fate as Steam, and even worse because we were just we we're such an ambitious like little studio that, and that's why it was one of our best and our worst years is because the console updates just really fell off, you know. And I really feel for those players to be honest because. They were kind of like a number of versions behind Steam. And we always yeah. said from the from the get-go that Steam would lead. We never had SimShip, but it was always our goal to get to a point where we would have SimShip on console. And we just we just never got there. You know, we eventually came along and pulled them all up. When we did 2.0 and stuff, um, we pulled them all up. But um, And our 2.0 as well was kind of a bit of a disaster, if I'm honest, as well. Like it, um, we that one, again, because we were so scattered at that point in time doing other things and ex- like executing on all these opportunities because Armella was such a success and everyone was offering us all these things like um we were like that's awesome yeah we'll do a worldwide physical retail release or yeah we'll do a toy line or whatever and it just was it just really distracted us and so um in the road to 2.0 we just weren't having the the traction or getting the actual um production rate on the features that we needed the major features so 2.0 changed from being this big chunky update that was going to have things like 2v2 and all this other cool stuff to ending up being a bit more of a quality of life update like a big overhaul and we were like well that's not bad there's heaps of stuff like so we overhauled all the menus and everything it made the game so much better but as far as the community saw it like we've been telegraphing it for a year and then you get there and it's just like a quality of life right. update. The game like, hasn't really changed. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It was a real bummer. And unfortunately we didn't see that one really coming. And, you know, it was one of those things where you, you know, you're sort of between a rock and a hard place. So you convince yourself that it's okay. Or you're on the right path. When I think that, um, you know, we, we, I think we kind of knew what we were in for when we released it. Yeah. It's a, uh, I, I definitely want people to appreciate like how much the, what you were talking about before the stuff mm. you did kind of before 2018, yeah. like how much work that is. Yeah. Like, I mean, that's, that's a huge marketing effort to like be able to stick on, on getting beats like that, yeah. out, you know, regularly, like to the point where we're now a 70 person studio, like yeah. before we were a 12, 15 person studio when we were doing this, now we're a 70 person studio and we are like, that's insane trying to do that, you know, like every eight weeks or whatever. Now we have sensible people around us who are like, we can't hit that, you know, hit that cadence. That would be crazy. Um, and, you know, so we've got to like our, our updates are kind of not not that regular, you know, now on, on Jump Light Odyssey um, and, you know, looking at ways that we can hit that approach or have that same sort of thing on Armalo. But, yeah, it was a huge undertaking. I think the agility of the team really helped. But also I got to stress too, like we have a fantastic team now, but the team then as well were just really, really great. We were very, very, very lucky. Like, you know, when you have 70 people, you have really talented people across the board, you know, but you can have talent to differing degrees. But when we were the small 15 person Armello team, everyone just, again, by chance, like it's one of these things, you know, we, we experience we're the recipients of luck a lot more often than we would like to admit, but the team that we had and how fantastic everyone was at just operating in this completely autonomous sort of really effect, hyper-effective way that enabled us to self-publish and self-market and develop this game and react really quickly and, you know, release these builds that were incredibly stable to a large degree, you know, um, was 
was really quite remarkable. I remember I had this, um, this sort of realization of horror, um, at one point, you know, like after, you know, we shipped Armello and we were thinking about shipping more games and what we're going to do next, but like a couple of the core people had left. And I remember there was like three engineers in particular on the project when we shipped Armello. Um, and just the luck that we had to have those three engineers in the room. I mean, like of such immense experience, you know, like crazy, crazy amounts of experience and wisdom. And just like the, you know, there's so much to be said for people who keep calm in chaos as well, you know, Mm -hmm. like the temperament of these folks and their design acumen and like, but these, I just don't think Armello would ever have happened if these three people weren't in the room, you know? Um, and we were just absolutely like, we had no idea how lucky we were at the time that they were there. Yeah. You know, even though we were very grateful for them being there and very appreciative of them, it's interesting in hindsight, like what it, what it takes to do these things. Yeah. But after, so after 2.0, um, you didn't go back to the old model, right? No, Is that you, because I mean, I think to some extent you, you have to kind of move on, right? Yeah. But like. I actually can't even, God, I'm blanking on that immensely. What? No, we did. We did like a 2.1 and a 2.2. But by that time, I think it was like the time of death had been called on the project. So in, if we're talking like revenue and the commercial success of Armello, by 2018, which is about three years post-launch, it was our most successful year. We'd grown, the revenue of the game had grown like 20, 25% year on year. Yep. Um, the DLC was now making more than the base game. Um, it was it was pretty wild what, like what we were seeing, but that was kind of the peak. And then it started to taper off and the game sort of then 30% year on year revenue dropped. Um, and I think a lot of that had to do with this misfocus, this misdirection that we had. I don't think the game was evergreen. Like the game has some core issues in its design. For example, it's, you know, only one out of three, out of, only one out of four players can win and the game goes for 90 minutes to two and yeah, a half sure. hours, right? Like that's just, it's going to have a shelf life of a certain amount, right? A game like that. Um, but we did do a 2.1 and we did do a 2.2. Yeah, we did a 2.1 and with that we released the Dragon Clan, mm-hmm. um, which is like our meatiest DLC yet, a whole bunch of, you know, like reptilian-style characters, really cool. Um, and we did that with the full... Because every DLC we did, we'd do a full-blown 2D animated trailer and everything. We really treated it like a full-blown game release. But still, that's our worst-performing DLC, just because... And it's not because it's of, of any lower quality or anything like that, but I think it's just because, the, you know, we're on the downward slope yep. when that one came out. Yep. And yep. then... Between that and the next update was like two years, essentially, because we hit COVID. We had people had moved on from another onto other projects. We hadn't we had another project in the building at that point that it, yeah. you know that everyone was now on, and the game was also at a point where we honestly couldn't touch it without like introducing more bugs yeah. than before because a lot of the folks who'd worked on Armello had moved on to other things and everything, and the game was just so like. Again, we never designed it to be supported post-launch. So it was like we were trying to get blood out of a stone from this thing. Yeah. And so every time we touched it, it just was like less and less stable. And then Microsoft pulled out, <laughs> pulled like the version of PlayFab that we we're using. So we had to rewrite the multiplayer oh, and everything. And when we were just about to launch it. And so actually extricating ourselves, although our games as a service, like life cycle on 
you know, on our mellow was amazing and really good. We completely struggled, really struggled to extricate ourselves from that. Like no one had, we, there was actually no example when we were like, okay, we need to sunset this game as a service game. Sure. There was no example of anyone who'd done that before. Yeah. And we were like, how the fuck do we do this? How do you tell a community that's been expect, getting free updates for six years that there's not going to be any more? Yeah, um, we've seen some games recently just be like, make these kind of weird, awkward announcements of like, yeah. We're done. See you later. Um, yeah. And uh, I know Layla always likes to, say, likes to say, like, why did they just say that? It's like, it's like, like there's, there's yeah. no upside to ever, like, saying that. Like, it's um, it's it's just these difficult things. Like, every game has a life cycle. Yeah. And, like, you know, you, everyone should be honest about that, yeah. right? And, um, uh, you know, it's really hard to pick that, that point. Like, it's mm-hmm. – I look at, like, the Crusader Kings 2 – like yeah. path and i'm yeah. like how did they how did they stick string along 10 years of dlc the idea that they have these these 30 different dlc packs that can all be triggered on and off yeah. like that 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 code base must be like a horror Crazy. show you know like um and That's wild. it's you know i mean you gotta you gotta at some point figure out like when yeah like it, that I know people definitely brought up Armello as like yeah. a, a good example of like, okay, this is, you know, indeed doing games yeah. of service yeah. well, right? But like there is this sort of like unspoken idea that like games of service just means like you're, you know, you're supercell. You're just going to work on this game forever, forever. Yeah. right? And people actually expect that. Yeah. And they still expect it to this day. Like we have people on the forums reviewing us down or on Steam reviewing us down because it's a dead game. Dead we've, game. Aban- we've abandoned the game. It's like, like, and we, you know, as I said, that hyper transparency that we practice with the team, we practice with our community as well. Like yeah. the best, the best social post we've ever made, like the most engagement, the most successful post ever was once we shipped an update to our mellow and it introduced a crash rate of like 33% or something. We found out the next day. Yeah. And so we just came back and we're like, sorry, everyone, we fucked up. Here's exactly how it happened. Blah, blah, blah. We put a post, we're rolling back the update. And everyone was like, amazing, really transparent, honest. And so we were like, okay, well, we're going to be very transparent and honest. We knew that. And we, so we just told the community and because we always speak in business terms, we're never just like the thing I hate about video games. It's done so much damage and I could sit here. We could have a six hour podcast. Me just ranting about this is like the video game, like hyper reverent, like of the gamer marketing tactic that we've done for decades and decades. Like this is for you. The gamer is such bullshit. And it's led us to such entitlement in video games. And honestly, so much toxicity, I think as well, that we really try and counter that in all of our comps. So we're very, we talk about the fact that we're a production house and that the games need to make money and that we have mouths to feed. And so we just came out the gate and we were like, this game is not making money anymore and we want to make other games. We've made a game about fighting animals for seven years or 10 years. We want to do something else. Um, and there's there's enough content. You can play this game for a thousand hours. You probably shouldn't, but you can, you know? So we're going to do other things. But the one thing that we did identify that we needed to do, which actually proved to be the hardest thing when, we le- when leaving that game was we needed to give, and because I think it was the Gungeon guys, and when we were deliberating how do we sunset a game, they sunset into the Gungeon or whatever it was, and they gave like a big update or a DLC for free or something at the end, I remember. And we were like, that's it. You need to give like a parting gift. Mm-hmm. So like one final update that's like awesome or gives them this big thing that they wanted. So we were like, we're going to do cross-play. 
as like the final yeah. update because it also works for us commercially keeps the lobbies, yeah it keeps people being, able to, play yeah, together, being yeah. able to play together and everything so but then that was the thing that my we almost finished it microsoft canned the service and we had to rewrite <laughs> it and everything so it became this like money pit yeah and so by the end we've just told the community that we were like we've actually been supporting this thing at a loss for the last year yeah. we sunk almost close to a million bucks into that game sure. you know that we will never see back you know yeah yeah that's the other end of this this games yeah. as a service question yeah. right like it's very easy because you aren't gonna you aren't gonna find out immediately like oh we're losing money today mm, yeah. you're gonna find that out a year or two <laughs> years from now where you're like wait a minute yeah like the revenues have dropped to the point where the money we we're spending back then is not going to pay off yeah right yeah um like that's that's super super tricky yeah yeah absolutely and we we were definitely a victim to that in our we should have we should have pulled the pin on our mail, like the big lessons on our mail, the should-haves, I think, you know, in hindsight that I would have loved to have done. No regrets because we've learned this now for future games. But what I would love to have done is kept the focus on Steam and consoles and just focused on giving them really solid experience, not fucked around with everything else that we tried to do. And then also I would have just ejected us out of that, out of the cycle like two, three years earlier and then just moved on to something new and cleaner and done it a lot more, a lot more smoothly. Yeah. Yeah, we, we've... Um you know, we update really regularly, but mm-hmm. I've, I've, I think I have been a little, it's, it's just so weird. Like think of this, like the idea of your parting gift to your community, yeah. right? Like at a thousand, you know, like a thousand feet up, like yeah. someone looking down, like an alien looking down, they're yeah. like, what, why <laughs> you way over delivered yeah, the, whatever yeah. the 25, 30 bucks or yeah. whatever, like the, they, they paid for this game originally. Yeah. Like, like why, how did you get in, how did you get in this position? You know, it's crazy. Yeah. It makes me, it obviously makes me mad sometimes like that type <laughs> of like that level of gamer entitlement, you know, we gave to our, to our Kickstarter backers as well. I think we had 6,500 Kickstarter backers or whatever. And every single DLC that we made, we gave it to them for free. Yeah. Like we never, we never said that that was a part of it or whatever, but we just did it. And I feel good about that. I don't regret it or whatever. But like, you know, when you jump onto the St- Armello forums and, you know, people are like, you know, we have a fantastic community, but you'll get these people who come by and they're like, why aren't there any more fucking cards in the game? Put more cards in the game or where's the cat clan? It's like, bro, there's 370 <laughs> cards in the game. You know, we supported the game for seven years. Yeah, yeah. Come on. <laughs> what? So it's funny. You've talked about updates. We haven't yeah. really talked much about DLC. Yeah. Like, what was your DLC plan? Like, what worked? What didn't work? DLC plan, it all worked, essentially. Like, okay. there was um, the... We probably over-indexed in regards to spend on the DLC, but I think that was largely... Spending uh, where? <sighs> The, the animated trailers are always super expensive. Yeah, sure. I think okay. they like did a, we did them in house, but you know, they worked well and I think it was good for our brand and our studio prestige. Um, but they would just be, they were always longer and bigger experiences or like development cycles. than we thought, you know, cause we were just so committed to the like quality of things and we want it. Everyone's bouncing back and forth ideas that it just always blows out. Not so much in like, scope creep but like just to achieve the quality that we want to hit like it naturally takes us longer than we ever expect and i think we could have been better at planning out those dlc especially towards the end dragon clan was really hard one like getting that one across the line because we tried to do some ambitious stuff by rewriting the quest system and, uh, and other things um but essentially the tactic was this so this is the league of geeks sort of premium games as a service strategy is that you have so there's kind of like five elements or whatever the top level element is a premium priced multiplayer game so um, that has like really systemic systems that have a lot of replayability. So let's say that's our mellow for 20 bucks. 
The next tier is premium DLC. So our premium DLC, and that is like rich high value content. That's like gameplay content. And so in our mellow, it was heroes. So we would sell hero packs. So four heroes, obviously, as you heard, they come with their own game breaking sort of power. They have their own sort of backstory and aesthetic. And then we would chuck a bunch of like random goodies in there with it as well. So you get new rings, there's some more quests or just random shit that we would put in to fill it out. Um, and then there would be the, the third element is the free updates. So we would do free, whilst the, you know, the DLC came every like year or nine months, the updates would come every six to eight weeks. And they would met those BNUs, major branded updates, completely free. And they would be like the systemic stuff. So we never put anything in the DLC that would sever the pools of players sure so right. everything so it was obviously just stuff that you could take to any game mode and everything and also with our dlc too we did the paradox thing where um if you have the dlc and we play multiplayer then i have the dlc yeah sure yeah yep. um and then so yeah one is the premium based game two is the dlc three is the major updates and then four is the um community events essentially so or sorry, the in-game events. So we had PlayFab plugged into the background. So that Fury mode that you see that triggers every Wednesday, we also have, um, I think it's, I, I forget what it's called, but it's essentially like a house rule mode um, where we change up the games like every Wednesday. Um, it can, you know, there's like a new lobby that opens yeah. and we have like, you know, dice rotations and we have double drop weekends for your chests and things like that. Um, so we have these like in-game calendar events. And then the last element was just this, hyper transparent hyper interactive um degree of communication with the community and so that included like streaming on twitch three times a week it included being present in the steam forums all the time um even in places like the community had an armello discord that we would jump into every now and then doing things like even on the show floor at pax and stuff um, traveling around the world meeting fans and that and that kind of that all just sort of fed into itself every element of that just really created this um this sort of funnel that took people from like, oh, what's that game? And then galvanized them into these like super fans that would keep their game installed and, you know, come back for every update. Yeah. Mm. How much did the DLC lift the, like the game sales? Huge. The DLC was making more. We have an attachment rate that's like unheard of where it's basically like 35% attachment rate to the DLC. So, um, and then also the DLC was making more money than the base game yeah. within by 2017, within two years or something. As soon as we had two DLC out there. Um, so, yeah, and they always made their money back. I think Dragon Clan, again, because it came off the other, our final DLC, came off the, you know, was on the downslope. That took longer, but they would always make their money back like in the first week or two or something like that. Yeah. We were also talking about luck, though, as well. We were also really um, lucky to have a lot of support from Valve and Steam at the time when Steam was doing a lot more sort of like, like the Steam, the store wasn't as saturated yep. and also they were doing a lot more like hand curation stuff. And we just, we very strategically um, just adopted every single Steam function that they would put out there. Steam OS, yeah, right. Steam controller. We do that too. Like, yeah. it's just like, whatever, yep, whatever you want, Gabe, like we'll do it. Like you want the game on Linux? Done. Like, and you want Steam inventory and using items? Done. Okay. Remote play? Not a problem. And then it just gave us a reason to talk to them You've all got the a time. Full, full list of like uh, all, the, <laughs> yeah. all the check marks on the right side. Exactly. Right? Yeah. yeah. Spot on. You know, we put it, we localized all of our store pages. We did everything like to the point where like Steam started using, we went to a dev days, a Steam dev days once back in 2015 and four of the talks like used us as the best practice, yeah. you know, because we were just so attentive at listening to like what they felt was best practice on their platform. And we were kind of, we were in this, um, 
this sort of like in this frontier land of games as a service on Steam that the only real other people doing it was like a couple of other indies and Valve. Right. Like, I mean, like the Orsonauts crew and us and Valve and like all of this stuff that you see with Rainbow Six Siege having these big branded updates or Call of Duty or whatever, we were first to do that, you know, like alongside Team Fortress and everything. And we learned it from them. It's not like we came up with it, but we kind of honed that model on early in early access and now it's just the norm. Like yeah. it's what people do. Yeah. Um, and your DLC was it mostly mostly essentially new heroes? Yeah. yeah, yeah, it was all hero packs. There was one that we did, which was honestly the most profitable, but it, um, because of how easy it was to do, but it's a board skins pack, so yeah, you could okay. get like it was called Seasons, and you get an autumn and a springboard. Yeah. You can get away with one of those. Yeah, you know? yeah, exactly. But, and then we uh, had the um. Oh, one of the clever things that we did was we also had a soundtrack. The soundtrack's great by sure. our, our composer Michael Allen. But then we did the bundle, you know, and we actually found that we find that somewhere between 16 and 20%, it fluctuates over time, um, of players. When they buy Armello, yeah, they immediately just, just buy that oh, straight yeah. away. Yeah, the bundle's and, great. Yeah, yeah, it's really good. And especially the way, I don't know why other platforms don't do it the way that Steam does it, where like if you have two of the items already, like say you buy Armello and then a DLC and then you're like, yep. oh, I love this game, I'm just going to buy everything. It just discounts the bundle accordingly. Yep. It's so good. Yep. The uh, I'd say it's one thing that's really important to think about, you know, if you're making a game is that, it, it's great if you can have something that's a very, um, what's the right term for it? Uh, modular way mm. to extend the game. Yeah. Like for Armello, the obvious thing is new heroes, yeah, yeah. right? For, you know, for old world, it means like new civs or new events, yeah, right? Yeah. It's something where you can, you can keep adding stuff to the game and it's not going to break it. Yeah. As long as you don't get too ambitious or yeah, whatever. But exactly. like, you know, you're not, you know, having to keep trying to, try, bolting on new systems is yeah. not the best path. No. Yeah. I think, and a lot of games do do that in their DLC. It's not what we want to do. Like that's stuff that we would put in a free update, but you know, the content extensions that you can play. The big question, especially with the multiplayer game that we just asked ourselves is like, we would always just be like, you know, one can buy a dlc and then not be able to play with other people yeah, or change definitely. the game or something for them and we're doing it with our new games it's kind of like the model that we're sort of betting the house on is this kind of buy our premium indie game and then we're going to make a bunch of content that you're going to want and it's going to be a fraction of the cost of the base game but it's going to extend your experience and everything and you know i think there are some gamers or some folks out there that don't like that dlc model you know especially when more games are doing you know free updates and everything all of the time obviously microtransactions are a whole different thing you know we went yeah. through that thing on our mellow um you know we tried that out and everything but like moving you forward you tried out micro yeah, you tried yeah. out like like, a, like an in-game currency yeah we had so we so Armello and mobile is free to play. So that has like the whole soft and hard currency and all that sort of stuff. We changed that to be free to completely free to play, split up the hero packs into individual heroes. That you can buy via like a in-game currency or a hard currency and everything. Um, but then um, we also just had in, even on steam, we had this again doing stuff because valve has a shiny new thing that they want people to play with. Um, we were like, yeah, cool. All right. Well, let's put some, let's do some special dice that we can put in the item store. Yeah. You know, you can't get them from chests or whatever, but you can buy them for five bucks or something. We did character skins. That was the one character skins was the big one that we did, like just aesthetic skins for the characters, some for heroes. And they were just like really make money. And it kind of made people feel yucky about the game. <laughs> so we we're like, all right, we just put them into the chests that you get at the end of the game and sort of wound that up at some point. Um, but yeah, it was, it was an interesting, interesting experience. But now we just, that's like, we love the, I think as well at League of Geeks, we love making product too. Yeah. Like we're so used to that, that cycle at Taurus of like shipping games and pitching like weird things and like really understanding an IP um, that 
even outside of just like it being a really good commercial model to keep that, you know, in games you have this sales spike and then the tail just drops and patters out. What we found on Armello was by having those updates and, you know, that structure, the five point structure that I was talking about before, the DLC just like every now and then just like is another spike and your global yep. revenue across the sort of the franchise can instead of being this like spike and then, you know, stone cold drop, it becomes this sort of slow glide down over the years, you know, and if you get it right, you know, it can you can even have it ascending for a few years like we did. And so that's our that's our goal, you know, is to basically create these really fantastic premium games that you don't need to buy the DLC for. That's the thing about Armel. It comes sure. at eight heroes. It's fantastic without the other ones. But if you're enjoying it, you want to try some other heroes or something, they're there. They can augment your experience. It's not pay to win in any way. Um, and so for Jump Light Odyssey and Solium Inferno, we'll be doing the same thing. You yeah. Know, we'll have be releasing DLC post-launch and updates. Yeah. I mean, I think if you have like a, you know, a, a solid model for like how you can add new content to the game in a yeah. healthy way. Like I think the DLC model is great. Yeah. I think generally speaking, people are on board, especially seeing that like half of the industry is all like kind of like free to play yeah. dodgy coin <laughs> microtransaction <laughs> stuff, you know, like yeah. I think it kind of like finds this nice happy medium. Yeah. Um, when it's what you see is what you get. I think a lot of people find faith in that for sure. Yeah. Mm. So how, how is the mobile stuff done? If it's like free to play with, <sighs> Mobile's, because it's, because yeah. that's not the normal way no. free to play works on mobile. No. Right? Yeah. No. Um, uh, Badly. Okay. <laughs> like, I mean, it was so basically we were having conversations with Apple because the game started as a mobile game. But yeah. then in the, the four years that we were making it, the entire industry shifted from a place where indies could do like a premium game or a free to play game and have some significant success, you know, that could support a studio to essentially absolutely the free end of the store. And then soon after the paid end of the store, like the charts are just dominated by paid spend. Which is one of the reasons why like Steam doesn't do like in-game purchase conversion like UTM analytics and tracking because they don't want that. They don't want path. that. Yep. Exactly. They don't want like someone like EA just buying their way to the top of the charts, right? Um, in a way that, you know, we indies or other people can't. And so that kind of happened underneath us um, as we were sort of making the game. And when we did the Kickstarter, we had to pivot away from mobile and to like Steam and console for that because obviously that's more of a Kickstarter plat um, platforms for Kickstarter, I should say. And so when we finally swung around to like, okay, now it's time, we're out the door. Um, we got our games out the door and on consoles. It's time to focus on iOS and get this stuff out there and Android. We speak to Apple and they basically show us some numbers and they're just like, you're not going to have a fucking good time if you like release this game premium. Like you, you should think about free to play. Right. And, um, you know, they're Apple. So sure. you listen to them and, um, it was just terrible advice. <laughs> it was just, sorry, Apple, but yeah, you know, it was just like, because we just didn't make any money in free to play anyway. And yeah. the game was never, like you say, it was never a free to play game. Yeah, yeah. And, and we spent so much money, like nine months or something making the ports when we should have just slapped them onto iOS and put a price tag of five bucks yeah. on them or something. And it's funny because the one, I, I wouldn't say these games are doing really well, obviously, yeah. but like, you know, premium debt, premium games on mobile are basically dead mm. with one kind of exception, weird exception, which is like board games. Yeah. Like basically board games still on there are still like yeah. four bucks or six bucks or yeah. maybe 10 bucks or whatever. And yeah. you guys obviously would be like, it seems like a very classic, like $10 that could have been premium game on <laughs> iOS. And, yeah. you know, I think it would always do fine, especially, I don't know if you have cross play between mobile and pc but not like, between mobile and pc but okay. you know maybe we would if that was yeah the case because if someone who's a fan, same game someone who plays a lot of multiplayer on steam i mean yeah. I, it's no-brainer they'd buy it for their yeah. their phone you know so yeah. 
look, the one thing that did work out for us free to play is that the brand is out there. Sure. Like we've had 6 yeah. million downloads or something yeah. like that. It's crazy. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so like every, like people like all over the world now know what Armello is. So, you know, we're doing an Armello board game. It's going to be like, you know, like I think like announced properly. There's been a soft announce or something, but it's going to be announced properly at like PAX Oz in October or something like that. And we'll do a Kickstarter next year. But, you know, there might be people who've never played the Steam game, but, you know, walk into a you know into a tabletop store and they see it there and they buy the board game or something yeah. so it's worked out well for us in regards to a brand recognition thing and it also was enough of it we we tried to do a lot of things at league of geeks so we had the wisdom as well you know right and that we could actually decide what we you know whether we wanted to do that or learn it for ourselves and what worked and what didn't and we, now we just know we never want to make mobile games as a studio yeah i mean we haven't even brought up the fact that you know eventually apple will just delete your game yeah it, it's it's a tragedy the, yeah. the mobile market is just a complete disaster yeah. and it's, like I, I always was kind of afraid of it but now like you know so many people are just telling people just like just stay away it's not a place to be happy which is also bizarre because yeah. half of the money made in the games industry is on yeah. mobile yeah um so and look it did okay for us in regards to like you know we're every month or something we'd have a few grand come through or whatever and like that that makes a difference over time like it adds up and it helps out in its own little way but it just was like yeah it's 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 a really i really feel for the players on there you know in the end like yeah. um because be through no fault of our own other than putting it on the platform um because of the stuff like you're saying with like android and you know ios like lord knows like with what's going on with the game on android at the moment we just reached a point where we got so many notices about like you got to change this and yep. the sdk to keep it going or whatever that we would try and run around and figure out what that meant and look at the games and see what we needed to do and then at some point it just reached we just were like fuck this like this is just such a waste of our money and time and you know if people really enjoy the game we are on all these other platforms and yeah, yeah, yeah. there. cool all right, well, let's let's give ourselves a chance to talk solium a little bit because we're <laughs> yeah, sure. we're actually getting close to dinner time. <laughs> I didn't think, think we'd talk about Armello for two or two or three hours, but, uh, but <laughs> Here we it, was are. Good, it was a good discussion. <laughs> um, so Solium Infernum, yeah, uh, you told me about this last last GC, yeah, and I yeah. was kind of in disbelief that. <laughs> Someone was bringing Solium Inferno back. Yeah, I think Vic was in disbelief when we told him we wanted to as well. Yeah. So what happened? So we, after our mellow, we were working on a project with Private Division. They were publishing a game of our own conception, a brand new IP and everything. We did that for about three and a half years, major game, eight-figure budget. Um, we had about 50 people on it. And then through the pandemic and other reasons, we just we decided to part ways, Private Division and ourselves, and put the game on ice. It's our game. We own the IP or whatever, but we decided not to continue with it. But then we had 50 people and yep. we were like, well, now we need to figure out what we're going to do with these folks. We didn't want to fire anyone. We had such a great team. Um, and what, the one thing that we knew that we needed to do in Melbourne, we were experiencing a lot of lockdowns with COVID and everything and just working remotely. It was too hard running a team of 50 people in pre-production remotely. So we're like, okay, well, first thing we know is we want to split the team in two, make some smaller games, diversify our risk. Um, we knew that we probably wanted to, you know, work with Callum Knights. So we had a co-financing partner so they could be of a particular scale so we could keep folks on board. And we had some money in the bank that we could fund them too. And we, but we had to pick two games. Easy one was Jump Light Odyssey. We had that. It was a concept called Love Boat Yamato, <laughs> <laughs> um, which honestly That's was a pretty good name. Yeah, it was yeah. the hardest working title we've ever had to undo at the yeah. studio. Believe me, um, we argued for months and months over what the new name could be. 
Um, but that was essentially as you see it now. You know, it was a sci-fi, 1970s anime-inspired, um, uh, incredible cross-sections, colony sim on a ship, like sort of FTL um, sort of colony sim. And we had been dabbling when the project that we actually um, got signed with Private Division, uh, our, you know, our second game that we're working on, when we were picking what our second game was, me, Blake and Ty, we went away for a week and we, you know, came up with a few game ideas, brought them back to the studio and there were three ideas. One was the game that we ended up working with Private Division on. Then that was the big one. Then we had a medium sized game and that was Love Boat Yamato. And then we had a small one, which was this like, it was called Kaiju Fury. It was kind of like our mellow, but with God... Godzilla sort of, you know, Pacific mm-hmm. Rim style characters. Um, and the studio, the team wanted to make um, Love Boat Yamato. Mm-hmm. But we kind of vetoed them and said, no, let's make the big game because the concept of the big game, the hook of it was kind of zeitgeisty and had a lot more promise, commercial promise to it. And we knew that if we put that on the shelf that that time would pass. Um, and so we made the decision to go with the bigger one. So anyway, naturally when we were like, okay, well, what game are we going to make the next Blake was like, let's do it. Love Boat Yamato, let's go. Like, we, it's a game that we can just dive into and start making. Um, and a bunch of the tools and tech and sort of that we had from the game at Private Division was, although it wasn't one for one, you know, we could leverage a lot of that experience yep. and stuff. So that was that. But then the other one was like, okay, what else are we going to do? And Ty, <laughs> our creative director, was being very coy, but kind of like being like, oh, what if we did Solim Inferno, blah, blah, blah. And then we went away for another week to sort of figure out what these games were and what we we're going to do. And at that that week um, away, strategy retreat, he just hit us with this pitch and he was like ready to go. He's like, Solim Infernum, <laughs> let's redo it and had all of these reasons. Um, we could ask Vic, like blah, blah, blah. Anyway, got us on board and we were all like, all right, like let's let's do it. Let's talk to Vic. And he's like, I already have. He's on board. He's on board. <laughs> yeah, so he'd been, Ty actually showed me Solium Infernum for the first time when we were working together at Taurus in 2009. Mm. And he was like, you got to play this game. It's like stolen my life um and then it stole mine for a month or so and Mm -hmm. and i never played multiplayer at the time but i played a hell of a lot of single player but it was one of those games that you just never forget you know it just it's just so singular and so even the aesthetics of it so striking that like whenever someone mentions it you're just immediately in it you don't forget it um and so for him to bring it up again i didn't know that he'd been pen palling with vic for years Mm -hmm. and then also in the moment i didn't realize too but a lot of the mechanics that he was bringing to armello and the prototyping and stuff were solium inferno mechanics like pandemonium in the center of the board the king and the palace in the center of the board marmello um you know a lot of the trickery deck was inspired by mechanics in solium infernum uh so it just made sense as a spiritual successor and obviously talking about the business logistics side of things we're trying to look for ways to like give something that various people on the team would be interested in so you know having this hectic hardcore strategy game based in hell and then having a more sort of camp anime you know colony sim um worked really well um it was the perfect spiritual successor to armella in regards to like the you know the hex based you know strategy Mm -hmm. game tech and the turn-based stuff we had a bunch of learnings and the audience um and we knew as well that there were just some things like we're really up for the challenge just like taking a you know tabletop adventures and bringing them to life um, that we could take Solium Infernum and, you know, crack it open for a whole new audience. So we were really excited about doing like the, our own bespoke arch fiends and stuff and like bringing a bunch of characters to the game and bringing life to the game in that sense. Um, as much as the custom arch fiend stuff was cool in the original. Um, so yeah, that was kind of it. I mean, Blake hadn't played the game, so he sort of spent, Ty sat with him and showed him the game and, 
And, you know, in the first half, for the first half hour, he was like, hmm, what the fuck? You know, as our design director, he was like, this is atrocious. It's like, layer Andrew Biden, what the hell? But then, you know. I mean, Sully Inferno, you could classify it under like outsider art. Yeah. You yeah, know, absolutely. Like it's it's truly coming from. I mean, a lot of indie games, I guess, is sort yeah, of like this. Yeah. But this feels even more so, right? He, because you know, of- when when I was hanging out with him after, um, like about this time last year at his place um, in Ohio, he he was telling me he knew no one yeah. in the video game the entire time he made those games. I think the only people he was talking to was folks like you on the quarter of three forums. Yep. Like that's it. He he just made those games in his den entirely on his own with no resources, support, or you know comms with anyone in the games industry. Yeah. It's and in a program Macromedia director, director that was yeah. designed to make DVD menus. <laughs> it's insane. <laughs> the man is a genius. Yeah. It's he. Get, yeah. I mean, I don't know how he made games in that format. Well, I asked him that. So one of the interesting things when I was there, you know, we're spending all this time together is kind of like, I had that question as well. It's like, even knowing all this stuff, still like, how, you know, you're still like, but how did you do this? (laughs) So So he, um, and also talking to him too, like when we offered him to write on Solomon Infernum or help out or be a part of it. And he was like, no, thanks. Like, you know, I'm, I'm okay because he's, you know, he really burnt himself out on yeah. video games because it was sure. so hard, right, to make these things. Yeah, and he kept going. He made a couple of games after yeah. that and it was, you know, it's, it's a real hard go. He never got yeah. those games up on Steam. No. Like I remember trying to help him out with that a little bit and yeah. it was just kind of, I remember we emailed Gabe. Yeah, like, right. Back in you like Hecka, 2000, right? yeah, me yeah. and Hecker, uh, uh, me and Checker uh, uh, emailed Gabe and like, the, yeah, they were like, yeah, no, this game looks too too uh weird. niche too yeah. weird for us they had no idea where steam would go yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> in the future but uh yeah it was you know it was a real shame because um you it know could have people, had this whole other audience yeah right? i mean people people who played the game and were into strategy games really appreciated it yeah you know yeah. it was really it was really unusual which is you know what you want yeah. from games right yeah absolutely and the thing that he said that got him through it that helped him do it was so he's in the air force right and like, you know, um, saw a bunch of like, he, he served like, in, you know, in conflicts and everything. And so he would do these missions. He was a cryptographer and he would do these missions, you know, he was flying back and forth. And he said, and when I asked him like how he got these games made, he's like, I learned this thing in the air force that I think they called it something like gutsing it, mm-hmm. which basically just meant like, you just had to push through all the time. <laughs> so they would get like a brief for a mission and then they would get up at like three in the morning, go and get the plane ready, get on the plane, fly this huge, long 10, eight hour mission. 12 hours, whatever, come back, then have to strip down the plane, get it ready, write your reports. He said there was like some system to make sure they went in a certain amount of time since when the wheels hit the ground. And like, so you just could not stop whatsoever. You just had to keep going and like be productive the entire time and like reach this objective. And so he just apparently as a young man, that just became a part of him, you know, for better or worse. And so he sat down to make Solium Infernum and he just sat there and made it until it was done. You white knuckled it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's just, I think the only way that you could, well, we're experiencing it right now. It's the only way you can kind of get, it, get done. it done. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, cool. Well, it's, it's, uh, it's a really unusual game. It's really mm. built around, um, it's built to be played asynchronously. Yeah. Right. Which is right. one of the, the nice things about yeah. it because yeah. I think a lot of games aren't built for that, mm-hmm. but I think that's a really underserved market. Yeah. You know, because you can, it's, it's, that's it's a great hope. way to play multiplayer. Yeah. And that was a big hope of ours as well is that like, you know, maybe in 2009 with all of the friction and everything, um, that like there wasn't really a market for it, but now, you know, there are so many people playing games who are our age, you know, or older who don't have the time, you know, Yeah, and you can't play 
can't sit down and play a grand strategy game with your friends for three hours. It's just not an option. Yep. Especially a six-player one. Yep. Um, and so the hope is that now the way that we've set up Solium Infernum is you just you get a notification on your phone on Steam yep. and then you just walk to your laptop or your PC or whatever, open it up. And like you, when you click the notification in Steam, just opens you up into that game immediately. Yep. And then you play your turn and then you close Steam and it's just, that's it. That's that's all you have to do. And you can actually play a game of Solim Infernum in literally like five to 15 minute bursts over multiple weeks. What you need to do is make a deal with some sort of um, video game streaming company so that you can click a link from your email and it'll open up the game in a tab in your browser. Interesting. Play your game and get out of there. I like it. Um, I think I have to talk to Chris from Xbox this week. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've been trying to do something like that for years with Old World because it's also a good asynchronous yeah. game. And just like they, you know, like these companies don't don't get it. They don't see the possibilities. Yeah. Like it's like it. it it's it's kind of neat that you can yeah. play Assassin Creed, Assassin's Creed in your browser, but, but it's like, not where you want to play. Who, it, who right? cares? Yeah. You can already play it. Like this is an actual fundamental change in use case for yeah. these games. Like you want the, it to be as frictionless as possible to yep. get into these asynchronous games, and like the streaming is like that's what it's that's that's what it's best at. Yep. Anyway, um, might email Netflix after this. <laughs> <laughs> you know, make sure my tech director doesn't listen to this podcast. Put him, put him in the hospital. <laughs> uh, um, so let let's talk. So uh, for the listeners who haven't played, which mm-hmm. is going to unfortunately be a pretty big yeah. pro- proportion of them, yeah, since it was a while people, ago. Yeah. Um, it, the the reason why it works asynchronously is because you submit your turns simultaneously. Yeah. So you, when you take an action, it doesn't actually execute. Right. You just say, this is what I want to happen. I want to buy this thing from the bazaar. I want to move my legions here. I want to add this unit. I want to bid. I want to do this. I want to do that. Um, so nothing happens right away. Um, and uh, so anyway, so that, that works well because then everything mm-hmm. processes at the same time. And also for, you know, like there's different ways to do games asynchronously. Sometimes that means, like most board games, you play them asynchronously. What it means is I go, and then you go, yeah. and then Blake goes, and yeah. then Ty goes, and yeah. whatever. And it goes around in circles, mm-hmm. which means it takes longer. Yeah. The game takes longer because uh, everyone's got to, it's got to pass through every person before it get, before you get another turn again. Yeah. But with simultaneous moves, um, as you know, we can take turns at the same time. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like if we, in fact, if, you're, if we're all sitting down on our computer at the same time yeah. um, and we all play, roughly speaking, take roughly speaking the same time, of peer, same amount of time to do our turns, yeah. like you'll literally almost never have to wait. Yeah, right. Yeah, of course. Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of the crew in the studio will play like that. So the way that it's currently set up, um, um, how we've got it running is like you can play a game and if you're all on the computer, once everyone's just submitted their turns, it just progresses. And so it's like playing the game in real time. And then you can just step away at any point in time and then it is asynchronous. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we should probably do a full Sol- Solium and Firm podcast after yeah. it comes out because it's got a lot Absolutely. of weird stuff in it. Like you can't you can't just attack units arbitrarily. Like yeah. the, the diplomacy is very heavy and there's a lot of... Red lot tape of, and... <laughs> like secret packs and like, yeah. you know, there are hidden, sorry, secret... Uh, what are the goals called? Like, oh, schemes. Schemes, yeah, right, yeah. right. The hidden schemes. There's there's a lot of really interesting stuff going on there. Yeah, it's really crazy. And like really epic stuff. I remember there's one called like Power Behind the Throne, I think it's called, where basically someone can pledge to be your like your like vassal, like your blood yeah. vassal. And then but then when you win the game, they actually win instead, like some sort yeah. of worm tongue character because they've like had the this, Bene, Bene Gesserit this, victory condition yeah, from Dune. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um yeah. Uh so there's lots of cool stuff there, but there's two things I want to talk about here, both Definitely. of which 
yeah. I've already talked to you about yeah, yeah, yeah. to some extent, yeah. but it'd be kind of fun to discuss. One is, so one is that simultaneous moves, I yeah. think that works great yeah, for yeah. multiplayer, mm -hmm. but for single player, mm -hmm. I don't see why, I, I feel like the game should just be played like a normal game. Like you mean where it goes in you, order of the regent or something like that? When you yeah. move your unit, you just move your unit. Yeah. You know, you don't, you don't plan out where you're going to yeah. be. When you buy something from the bazaar, you just buy something from the bazaar. Yeah. Like, um, you know, you're not, you don't need to worry about the AI's feelings mm -hmm. about waiting for, you know, waiting for turns, right? <laughs> so that's not really a factor. And generally speaking, like the game just feels better. Yeah. Games feel better if, you know, the reason why you're doing it, you you, you do simultaneous turns, is it's a sacrifice you make yeah. to make the game work for single play, for multiplayer. Yeah. So... Anyway, no, I, to I totally, I totally hear you on that, and I think that one of the interesting things, first of all, is us as a studio taking on this game that now you actually just can't buy anywhere. Like, it's yeah. the game's not available. I think, I think, unfortunately for Vic, like when we announced the game, you had this spike in web traffic or whatever. <laughs> so he actually like removed the game from sale not long after oh, we announced really? it. But he, I think it was reaching the end of like the amount of keys or possibilities of him selling it or something. And anyway. He's off writing sci-fi novels now. Yeah, he didn't yeah. want to maintain the game. So you can't actually get it anymore. So we actually as a studio feel this, and especially as very strong fans of the first game, like especially Ty, who's the game director on, you know, Solium now, um, we feel this kind of responsibility to very faithfully like recreate the original Solium Infernum. So we are, there are some things where we're like, you know what, if this was our game or something, we might change that. But it's like we are also, while it's not a straight remaster and we are changing a lot of things, there are some core things that we're just like are so large that not only are we concerned sometimes about like opening things up in regards to like um, scope and what that would do in the repercussions. Like, for example, changing something like that, the 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 turns from simultaneous to a progressive sort of turn order, turn-based turn order, um, knowing Solium Infernum will have like, impacts that like shuffle throughout the game in all these weird ways that we could never have imagined. In fact, we kind of like had egg on our faces after getting the game, you know, purchasing the IP and deciding to do this game. We thought that it would be quite, quite easy to like just take this game and remake it because we had mm -hmm. no intentions of changing in a big way, but we did want to streamline some stuff and make it more accessible than that. But, you know, we would get into it, say, for example, Anthony, our principal designer, would be like, oh, this thing, yeah, I don't know why it's like that. Like, let's streamline that or let's merge these two things or blah, blah, blah. And then you get three months through, like, that actual decision and you're like, oh, oh now, I know why. now I know why it's not like that. And yeah. so the very large sweeping decisions, we've had to be very careful about, like, their impact. So that's the first thing that I would say to that is there is the, the sort of the joint concern of changing the original game too much and a responsibility that we feel of like giving people a very an experience almost extremely authentic to the first one um like even if we're changing some mechanics that the dynamics of the play and how like it should feel like the same solium infernum because the game doesn't exist and we want to do it justice and we feel we have a responsibility to and then also that there is this unfolding possibility of things that could occur there but there is absolutely something that we're talking about right now in the studio, which is what you're saying, which is there is something very interesting that arises from a game that is asynchronous that is like this point of friction that comes from not having this, like you were talking about, this instant gratification of seeing my units move or this reactivity or like even the interactivity of a game 
changes or the level of interactivity feels like it changes when you're just plotting things to do as opposed to seeing them play out. And so we're doing a lot of work and planning a lot of work around sort of like polish of the UI and making things more interactive and the way that it feels, you know, sort of like crunchier or more tactile to make the joy of plotting out things a lot better. Um, it's not going to be a one-for-one exchange of just like seeing your units move. And then also the AI turns, making them, currently you can skip them if you want through, but we just want to make them more snappier, more meaningful and everything. Because something else that we've done with Solium Infernum, which is an interesting thing is we've, in the old Solium Infernum, you put your orders in and then when everyone submits their turns, the game state just changes. Like mm-hmm. you just load into the game and you don't even see your last turn. It's just the new game state yeah. based off everyone's turns. But what we did is because we have the opportunity to with, you know, having a 3D board and the production values that we're bringing it to, we actually show things playing out or whatever yeah. you can, you know, like people moving around, the combat you actually see happen now, all that sort of stuff. But now it's added this section in between every turn where you're now watching these things play out on the board, which isn't always too desirable. Yeah. Um, Sometimes it's good to see these things, but there is this balance of a kind of wading through at the moment between both of those things. And what you're saying actually in regards to having it be not simultaneous, but progressive absolutely could work. I would just be interested to know how much of that sort of the second guessing what your opponents are doing, how much of that is lost. Because I think a beauty of Solium Infernum is that like, holy shit, we're all putting in at the same time. And that agony of like not knowing, oh God, are they going to come here? Are they going to come there? Hold on. What's the, t- what, am I the regent or are they the regent? Uh, who's going to, who's going to actually move is going to cancel each other out. Yeah. Um, whereas if you're doing it just you and then them, you actually know that you have right of way and it's going to yeah. change fundamentally how you interact with the more Machiavellian mechanics of the game. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm not as fully versed with, you know, like, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if there's a couple powers that would not make sense if the once game is we did that sequential. Yeah. So yeah. then, you're what you're talking about is kind of a, just a classic design trade-off decision, <laughs> yeah, exactly. right? Is losing those two or three things yeah. worth the benefit of getting things yeah. sequentially? And I get the idea of like lose the mind games. Yes, but I haven't played a lot of games that are single player where mm. I found mind games to be interesting because, yeah. because people don't AI. think the computer really has a mind, yeah. right? They. They, they don't they don't really relate to them the same way you're another yeah. person where like that if I'm playing you like it's you know it's mm-hmm. like for free like I'm already thinking about what Trent's yeah. personality is like what he's going to yes. do is he going to be yeah, aggressive exactly or yeah. not aggressive yeah. and as far as I can tell the game still plays out it's not really simultaneous because it still has to it does have because obviously you've, we've got to decide someone's got to go in the tile yeah right? exactly yeah um, <laughs> that's the exact example I was thinking one of. person yeah. in the tile yeah um, no you're absolutely right and there is look there are just natural quirks that come out of like Solium and like the game is fantastic. It's one of the best strategy games ever made, I'd say, but it's not a perfect game, you know? And there are some things that we're not going to be able to solve. Like when, as soon as people heard that we were remaking it, they were like, how single player going to play, make sure the AI is good because the AI is, you know, obviously like garbage in the first one, not because first of all, Vic isn't an AI programmer, right? But second, (laughs) he's making it in a program again to make DVD menus. But um, it's just like, you're absolutely right. When the, when the whole thrust of the game is about these Machiavellian mind games and the, the double guessing and everything of what players are planning and scheming when you're playing against AI, you know that that's their rote mechanical decisions that are coming off some sort of model that someone's made. And so we do naturally have fears that, 
And it's kind of like the AI for most strategy games. It's like you, we can never meet the player's expectations of like the, the perfect AI player. And I think, unfortunately, Solium Infernum is going to play victim to that in a, in a big way, this yeah. is, which is kind of a, you know, a point on the board for your, what you're arguing for, yeah. you know, I mean, is the sequential stuff. I think it's always important to like know your inheritance, like yeah. what stuff you're inheriting from the games yeah. that you're trying to, you know, sequelize or remake yeah. or whatever. And a lot of the decisions that, that uh, Vic made yeah. were made for all sorts of reasons and yeah. not necessarily for gameplay reasons. Nah. Like, you know, the reason, <laughs> I think the reason why the game sport stage, uh, why the reason why the game board just updates yeah. because that was like way simpler yeah, of course. than him <laughs> trying to like come up with some sort of replay system, you know? Exactly, yeah. Um, and, you know, it was probably also easier for him to just have one mode, not yeah. two modes, yeah. right? And he's just one guy, yeah. right? And, um you know, what's the right decision for the game? Yeah. Like, you know, like it's still, whatever you do, it's still going to be like very much solely in Yeah. Yeah. Right. Like sure. you, 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 you shouldn't, you know, to me, it's, it's a lot like the, <laughs> like, you know, like all the things that Dota and League of Legends inherited from World of Warcraft, you know, from Warcraft yeah, 3, yeah, yeah. like, you know, like, which is like some of like, it, it's debated a lot because none of these were intentional decisions, right? Yeah, like they got, they got it, last yeah. hitting, they got, uh, what's the other main, well, anyway, whatever. They got a bunch mm -hmm. of, um, uh, oh yeah, killing your own minions, right? Yes, like yep, yep. a bunch of kind of really weird things. And, you know, I don't know, maybe they're good, maybe they're bad. We can debate that a lot, but like, you know, you want to, you need to be critical about those type of things because yep. those weren't necessarily like intentional decisions right no totally um and look to be completely honest when you said that to me the first time over slack recently i was just like huh <laughs> you know like you, <laughs> you have that thing where you're like oh yeah that is an interesting i think it's such a nuclear option you know that i think a lot of us hadn't even considered yeah, i can't obviously sure. you know i think when you speak to ty it'd obviously be a fantastic option to you know get him on here and just talk about solium and vernon for eight hours but when you talk to him i think it'd be interesting to hear like if if him and anthony and you know jordan our original principal designer like had conversations about that but it was like something that hadn't even occurred to me to be honest and i think that it's totally on the table for like a solium infernum 2 or something like that but we do have pretty tight timelines on these projects and i think um unless it was like a pretty clear shot. Like we've we've chosen this project because we know that even if we just sort of remake it as it is, mm -hmm. like it's gonna it's gonna be a great game. Sure. Yeah. 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 All right. Well then let me throw out the other thing which yeah, is even do bigger. It. Let's go. <laughs> um, which is I feel like that there are too few actions per turn. Yeah. Like I think if you would if you would redesign the game from scratch yeah. in terms of like I want to hit the same design goals. Yeah and uh i want the same setting and yeah. i want to do yeah. the same type of stuff like i think it would be a more fun game yeah. if it was 40 turns with three turns three actions a turn yeah. than 60 turns with two actions per yeah. turn even though 60 times two and 40 <laughs> times three both <laughs> equal 120 yeah, yeah, yeah. like for lots of reasons from in multiplayer it means 20 less trips yeah. around you know around, around the, the, the the uh you know 20 20 less turns basically yeah. like the game's going to get through faster yeah and Two just seems like really low. Like yeah. I get like it's a really tight, yeah. really, really tight uh, uh, thing. But three is also pretty tight. Yeah. Um, well, Soren, you'll be happy to hear that we feel the same way. Oh, okay. So actually, yeah. <laughs> okay, so let's, let's. Easy, easy one. So we've been talking about that. Obviously, it's still um, Ty and Anthony are deliberating. And obviously with Solium Infernum, it's like There's you got to think about all of yep. like what does it mean at turn 40 for the game? And especially if it's asynchronous and you've got five games running and you come in and you've done nine actions at this point because of the progression of the order slots or whatever. Um, 
so they're still deliberating that. But like, you know, we were talking about it the other day. And I remember when we were chatting, we, I spoke to Ty about this because um, he was like, mm, I don't know, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, you know, it's one of these small decisions can have such a huge impact. One of the biggest inflection points in Armello's design was we chose, we made the heroes go from three hearts, like three body yep. to four. Yep. And what it did was you just had way like 50 to 70% less deaths and yep. way more of the game spending your yep. your time teetering on the edge and that nail biting thing. And so we absolutely feel that it's very likely because the games are long and solemn infernum. And I think this is one of those things that we've inherited that you're right. Those two order slots are agonizing, you know, like, but we also find the games are a little bit slow off the mark at the start. Um, that early game that is, if you're a Solium Infernum fanatic, you know, like that early game of territorial control and setting up your plans and everything feels great. But I think it's just, it's just that we want people to feel those hooks of the schemes that they're yeah. setting up much sooner. And there's other things too, like you buy a Legion early yeah, and it's like, well, I can't even move them both and yeah. do anything else. Yeah. You know, like yeah. this is, this is super, exactly. super tight. And then also I'd say that it makes the third order, the, mm. the third action, less of a no brainer. I'm not sure if it's necessarily yeah. a no brainer, mm. but like going from two to three actions yeah. is a lot different than going from three to four actions. Yes. Totally. Right. So yeah. it makes that, that third, the fourth action is not mm. as crazy valuable as a third yeah. action would be. Yeah, correct. So more things to think about. Yeah. No. Yeah. We're absolutely thinking along the same lines. And I, and I think we'll, we're definitely going to trial out playing the game and some testing with increasing the order slots. Um, because one of you know, and it's just that's actually pretty that easy, easy change. To yeah, make today, yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. It's just going to think about the ceiling and you know our, our sort of UI. It's honestly, I think the only thing we'd be thinking about is, like, you know, uh, retention or sort of um, no, retention's not the word. It's like um, apprehension. No, comprehension. <laughs> oh my god, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm blanking out here. Comprehension of the game state coming back to it in the late game when you have ten order slots or something. Yeah. But again, we're only upping it by one, and then we would just be thinking about like the UI tray, which is very yeah. easily updated. And, and, yeah, there's you know there's probably other tweaks you can make to the late game yeah. to like if if it leads to some other weird issues, right? Yeah. Like yeah. there's probably less need for extra orders yeah. later in the game. If, if, I think so much of Solium Infernum as well was like there were things that we confidently knew we wanted to do, like we yeah. merged. I forget what they were called but it was like powers and attributes with two separate tracks yeah. merge them straight away you know the arch fiends like setting up a custom arch fiend whilst a lot of people loved it um was just it was 30 feet of the 40 foot wall to enter the game yeah. for new players you know um, and having those characters that people can attach themselves to and project some role playing into like bringing that yeah, for marketing yeah exactly you know um so there were just some things that we knew we wanted to do straight away and we swept through and did that updating and streamlining and adding some things and everything but then as soon as we sort of had that, it was like, okay, now we just got to make this crazy yep. ass game. And the funniest thing was like, you know, it's 12 years ago or more, 14 years ago since um, Vic made the game. So we would like call him and be like, dude, in this, you know, when this happens in the game and this thing, it's like, what? We like, I don't know. He's like, <laughs> no. don't ask me that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I've, I, that's a four area for me and I forgot a lot of that stuff yeah, sure. yeah yeah exactly you saw me scraping the bottom of the barrel here with Armello as well like it's um, <laughs> it's uh, okay. so we kind of just building this game has been a large part of development because it's so sprawling um, but we've managed to add a bunch of cool stuff into it and um, now we're getting to the point where it's been great having you in it um, playing around a bit we got a mock review recently that you know gave us a bunch of really good advice um and we've had we've had players in the game like we've had players from our discord in their testing in rounds yeah. and we've had we've got we've already had it and we've got another bout of like first time user experience like pipeline testing of folks coming in you know the classic watching them play over their shoulder and so now we're at the point where it's kind of like 
okay, the game is kind of there and we can now finally play with like Praetor jewels and all of this crazy stuff in the game. All of the mechanics are there. How And then now we're finding the things like, oh, okay, we need more order slots probably. And like what, you know, and it is like, it's just such a drag watching the, the Abyssal Striders like move around the map. And, you know, yeah. how do we, how do we make the game more, you know, um, because obviously, as I said, we weren't discussing changing it to single player, but to how do we solve the same problems that you're not single player, sorry, like pro- the progression from simultaneous to just sort of like um, progressive turns. Um, how do we address those same problems in other ways, you know, by like making it more meaty or more interactive? Um, yep. It's a really, really interesting design space to be working in. It's so much fun. And it's just so good to see the team. You know, it's the, it's one of those games. Everyone has the story of like the game that people in the studio played more than anything else. Right. That's Solium Infernum for us. The team have always got games going all the time. Like not because they're told to or they have to. They just love destroying each other and Solium Infernum. Right. And every, I mean, everyone on the team. Like it doesn't take, it doesn't take any, you know, it doesn't show any mercy to anyone. You know, it's sort of like once, and I, this is, we were talking to some folks at Gamescom about it and Will, our um, senior technical designer who was formerly at Amplitude, um, he's on the game and he was, he was talking to some of the press and some of the stuff that he was saying, I just fully agree with in the sense that Solium Infernum is almost a more relatable and more human, like, has like almost a potential for a greater appeal than most strategy games because of its focus on like almost like high school politics, you know, and like the mind right. games, like when players, you see it happen. And I, I feel it myself. Like when you get to that fifth turn and someone's insulted you and you've like, you got a little bit of a vendetta against someone and you starting to form these schemes. Absolutely. Like it just has its hooks in you. It gets, it gets people on a very relatable sort of human level. That's not, mechanical you know a lot of strategy games they'll have the one one more turn thing but it'll be because of like some mechanical outcome that you're looking for or whatever but in in solium infernum it's like it's it's yeah there's something almost more emotive or emotional or like human about that appeal that's more relatable to folks because it's not strictly mechanical like vic has managed to do this thing where the context and the premise of the game and like the narrative and the the how evocative the world is how it really makes you feel like one of these warring archfiends that is you're just locked in these like really high stakes personal battles yeah of pride you know yeah yeah Yeah, absolutely an interesting thing that we notice is almost everyone who plays the game when they send messages to each other so you know in solemn infernum you can send a message as one of your orders each turn that they do it in like they role play those messages. Yeah. Like they again the game doesn't prompt them to or anything, but they'll write it like whatever Archfiend they're playing. One of our guys, Mackie, our principal engineer, has this, this Archfiend character that he plays as, regardless of what actual Archfiend he's chosen. He always yeah. plays as Tim from marketing. <laughs> <laughs> and so he's Sounds like, like an Archfiend. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so you'll get this message from Tim from marketing in this corporate speak every time. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. It really gets you. Oh, that's great. Cool. All right. Well, I think we've. Filled up the time between lunch <laughs> it. and dinner. So the, the question I always like to end with mm-hmm. is why have you devoted your professional career mm-hmm. to making games? That's changed over the years. Okay. I think when I first started, it was, and I was filled with pride and ego as a youngster. It was because video games was this like verdant medium that was in its infancy, you know, like film's been around for 120 years or something like that or more and the techniques are kind of set and and we're kind of just seeing remixes of those but 
video games is just very like to think about the kind of experiences that we'll be playing in 20, 50, 100 years time is just wild. But, you know, film may largely stay the same. There's you've already had your Kubricks and your folks who have really progressed the medium in big ways. Um, but, you know, I think there was a desire that I would be, you know, 200 years after I'd gone, that there would be a little photo of Trent Custer's in a book in some, you know, or some data data pad or whatever kids are using in the future um, about like the influence that I had on the medium. Um, that's wholly changed now. Like I don't have any sort of like, I don't think I have any ego in the game anymore. You know, I don't have any desire to sort of like impact the medium in that kind of way. Now what interests me and keeps me going is I do feel a deep love for the medium and because of that and a sort of responsibility to it because of that hypocrisy that I was talking about, like video games are this incredibly powerful medium and they're, they're like, oh, it's a Gestellkampf or something. I forget the German word that it means, you know, like a, a medium of all mediums, yep. you know. Um, it's, really, it's really special, but like at the same time, I think it's really fraught with with difficulties around, you know, like irresponsible developers, you know, exploiting, you know, people through shitty dark patterns or whatever, or, you know, even questions about like, you know, the biggest licenses sort of promoting the military industrial complex, you know, and things like that. Um, so there are really, I think there's a, there's a degree of responsibility um, that we have to the medium. And there's, there's some interest in that and navigating that as an art form now, but I think really, it's actually just now on a much more personal level and an interpersonal level is that working in video games creates a degree of challenge that I think something that very few things do. And I've noticed a pattern through my life, whether it was like the girls I chased as a teenager or the things that I did, like competing in Taekwondo, or now I climb mountains as a sort of hobby with my mates. I've always been these sort of big, really hard challenges and Video games, it's a miracle anyone makes video games, gets a game done. You know, they're really hard. And especially when you're an indie studio from Melbourne trying to make, you know, critically, culturally and commercially successful video games on an international scale. I love the camaraderie of rocking up to work every single day and working with this interdisciplinary crew of phenomenal people who are the most talented people you've ever met in your life. You know, like that is just, that's what gets me out of bed in the morning. Sure. I, I don't think that I could work... And because it's also, it has a creative element and it has, as a studio head, it has a, you know, it has a, um, a commercial or a business element to it as well. It just is, um, it's kind of addictive. You know, I find myself getting swept up in, you know, wanting to do more with our studio or more with our games and, you know, plotting out the next however many years of my life and being like, oh, okay, what I have other things that I should aspire to in life other than letting this thing consume me. I think I was a bit too, when it was pride and ego led, as a youngster, I think I, I think I sacrificed a bit too much. You know, I think I made the wrong decisions in regards to the things that I prioritized or how much I prioritized video games in my career, um, of which I'm very grateful for the, you know, the fruits and the spoils of that now. Um, but now I think, you know, as I said at the start, I'm 36 years old and you start to think more about, you know, community and just, you know, having a really good work-life balance and looking after the people. There's a really you know, it's a weird way to put it, but like I have a real paternal feeling for the studio, you know, and the people there and making sure that we're providing a really good house for talent and that people, when you see the progression of folks, like we have a, we have um, someone working for us at the moment who's, you know, a 3D, a junior 3D modeler and they, 
came, well, they, when we first met them, they were 15 years old doing work experience and worked with us for a week. And now they're employed. And we have folks who have come through the studio. We hired them straight out of uni. And now they're just like Darcy, our community manager that I've mentioned a few times. He has his own studio now. His game was just nominated for a game of the year and best design and all these awards at the game, Australian true. Game Developer Awards. And so... I think that's a, it's a it's a long answer, but it's a very it's a very complex question. I think, although it seems simple at its you know at the surface, there's there's a lot there that gets us out in the morning and keeps us going. Yeah, cool. Cheers, man. All right. Well, thanks for doing this. <laughs> Thank um, you. Good chat. Uh, this was definitely very good. <laughs> cool. All right. Uh, well, I think you're now officially number four. <laughs>